You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's time to wake up with the morning boys. On Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And here are your hosts, Ryan Hickey and Mark Kelly. Up, but a little better than Al Green, I think. What do you think? A little better than Al Green. I think this is the best. Good Tuesday morning, and welcome into the morning, boys. Ryan Hickey, Mark Ever Kelly, Austin Tidebaum with you on this Tuesday morning. Thanks so much for tuning in to the morning, boys. We're here every Tuesday, Friday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ton of ways to get involved with the show. You want to tweet us at WWSRN underscore radio. My personal Twitter, Ryan underscore Hickey, and the number three. Mark is at CK Magic Sports. You want to give us a call, get involved in the show, 1 877 909 9977. That's 1 877 909 9977. A ton to get to. A lot of NFL reaction. Both Jets and uh, Giants are losers over the weekend. A ton of other NFL action to get to. Another upset in college football. We'll discuss which one loss team has the best chance of making the playoff. Um, World Series Game 6 is tonight. Justin Verlander, Steven Strasburg, Astros on the brink after winning three straight in Washington to have a chance to win at home their second World Series in three years. Mark, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How was the weekend? Obviously a lot going on. You enjoy it? Yeah, it was, it was okay. Just okay? Okay. Freshly shaven, I see. <laughs> yeah, freshly shaven. Yeah, what, 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 what happens is... Uh, I just didn't feel like doing everything that I normally do in the morning. I mean, even guys, when you get to be my age, you, you, you don't just look like this when you get out of bed, okay? <laughs> it takes is, a lot of work, this huh? This is hard I work. I assumed you rolled right out of bed, shirt and tie and yeah. everything, and just came right down here. <laughs> this is hard work, you know? Also, I know, like, you know when you're in your 20s and everything just seems to work out. But it's when easy. You, when you get into your 40s, it's a little more. Okay, I was going to say, because me and Austin – you know, probably just rolled out of bed. And I thought, Mark, same thing with you, you know, but. Yeah, no. So I, you're I, saying there's a little get up in the morning, huh? There's, there's a little, like, you know, you have to, um, you, you got to prepare when you're, when you're 45. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully it doesn't take uh, too long. We do have DJ, uh, excuse me, CJ DeSimone, uh, host of the Jets Factor podcast coming on in about 20 minutes. Uh, we'll talk about the Jets' latest loss to the Jaguars. What's uh, in front for the Jets, their future uh, the remaining halfway through point, uh, halfway of the season still to come. We'll talk about there's any hope going forward. Is, is it even, you know, Adam Gase on the hot seat? We'll talk to that. Speaking of Adam Gase, I wanted to kind of get into our first topic here, Mark. Mm-hmm. Talking about two NFL head coaches, but I think this also applies to Adam Gase locally here as well, um, with Matt Nagy and Freddie Kitchens over the weekend. Both in different ways, I feel like, struggling or holding their teams back as both the Bears fall to the Chargers at home and then the Browns fall to the Patriots on the road as both now under 500. Definitely disappointing seasons to start so far for both. But quickly, just as a recap here, Matt Nagy in his game against the Chargers, the red zone offense was just absolutely atrocious. They made five chips to the red zone, scored one touchdown, looked absolutely inept, especially goal-to-goal situations. They looked like they just had no confidence in the offense, and especially Mitchell Trubisky. That showed and reared its ugly head later on in the game as, as they're driving for a game-winning field goal down by one. They take a knee to set up a 41-yard field goal for Eddie Pinheiro instead of trying to run the ball a little more, get some extra yardage, and basically make the field goal as close as possible. We'll get to that decision to take a knee in a second. And Freddie Kitch on the other side in New England, just two baffling challenges. And even probably the most ridiculous strategy I've ever seen intentionally taking a false start on 4th and 11 with the punt unit out there 
so he can save a timeout in the fourth quarter to then just go for it as Baker Mayfield was sacked and the Browns turned the ball over in downs. But especially with Nagy, going, we'll start with him for a second, mm-hmm. taking those knees, um, like I said, in field goal range with under a minute left. Mm-hmm. He basically came out after the game and was basically saying he had no even thought in his mind of running the ball or throwing the ball with about 50 seconds left to try to get a closer field goal than 41 yards. But obviously we know the Bears' kicking situation. Pinar missed a field goal earlier in the game that was even closer. I believe it was 33 yards. Mm-hmm. And it just shows the lack of confidence he has in Mitchell Trubisky, which, again, Mitchell Trubisky deserves a lot of blame because he has not lived up to the billing. And in a year where a lot of people thought he would take the next step after leading to the Bears to the playoffs last year, he has regressed mightily, and it's been very disappointing for him. But at one point, I'll ask you this, Mark, because we, again, we can tie this in with Adam Gase here. The quarterback deserves the blame for not playing well. But at what point do you start blaming the head coach for not putting their quarterback in the right position to succeed? And I'll say this with respect to Mitchell Trubisky. We know that he is his best when he's rolling out of the pocket, using his legs as a weapon, and play action. Well, they haven't run the ball a lot. They did a lot this last game, but two games ago they ran the ball seven times. They really don't roll out Mitchell Trubisky and try their best to make him a pocket quarterback. We see, again, with Adam Gase and Sam Donald maybe not playing his strengths. At what point is it on the head coach to put these guys in positions to succeed instead of just default blaming the quarterback for not making plays whenever you know the set play is called? Well, when you're dealing with a young quarterback, you, you basically take on the whole responsibility because the quarterback doesn't know yet. I mean, if, if you're talking about Darnell, if he's in his second year, maybe it's a little bit. And same thing with Trubisky. And Trubisky's had a year with Nagy underneath his belt. So there should be that, that trust that's already developed. I could see between Adam Gase and Darnell how that, that trust can shake, especially with some of the things that, like, if you're a quarterback, you want to believe that your head coach, your offensive coordinator, your quarterback coach, the offensive line coach, everybody's going to put you in a position where the only thing you have to do is just sit back and read the defense. All the plays that they're calling should be designed about, around a specific game plan geared toward your strengths, your offensive line strengths, and throwing in individual plays that can, you know, adjusting to what the defense is showing you. Obviously, I mean, I'm making this more simple than it is. Right. But that's, that's what, you, what you think uh, as a quarterback going into the game. So when you have a rookie head coach like Freddie Kitchens, who's, you know, by the way, um, Alabama grad. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Um, he was, like, with Dabo and those guys. You okay. Know, like, Dabo, you know, realize, you know, Dabo was yep. on, like, the 90, 93 or 92 championship team with Gene Stallings. Those were the 80s. I could uh, be wrong either way. But, yes, he, yeah, got, no, he yeah. won a national championship with Alabama yeah, as a player. It, yep. it, it was 92 and they beat Miami. Um, well, I, I think that Kitchens had a lot on his plate coming in. And what, uh, Mayfield doesn't make it any easier with his big mouth. So, if you're Mayfield right now, the only thing that you, you need to do is just go out and play it, if you're going to win, you're going to win. There's no need to hype up anything anymore. You're doing enough commercials. You're all over the place. I understood that was part of his, um, the thing that made him so likable to so many people. But when you don't win, it makes you just as much disliked. Rex Ryan was loved in New York when he was saying he wasn't going to kiss Belichick's rings. Right. But as you saw, uh, Belichick won his 300th game on Sunday. And the coach that he's beaten the most in those years is Rex Ryan. He's beaten him 12 times. So, ultimately, unless you win, nobody wants to see or hear you do anything. I remember Peyton Manning. One of the things that really endeared me to Peyton Manning was he had this uh, same type of, of thing that followed him, that he wasn't a winner. He couldn't win the big games, kind of like Kirk Cousins. Okay, and now Verlander's 0-5 in World Series starts. The only pitcher to lose that many as he starts tonight. 
What are you doing? There's a, there's a Yankees fan pumped up about uh, that. Yeah. Anyway, um, let me know when you're going to do that next time. <laughs> you got it. Um, I, I think that when, when you know, uh, Manning, what made him, like I said, endear himself to me was he started doing these commercials where he was making fun of himself. And it just showed a part of his personality that was very likable. And Manning's a good guy anyway. I, I had a chance. I mean, him and his brother Eli came into Sports Center when I worked there, and they did, you know, they had these commercials. They did a commercial of him and Eli walking around. We had just built these brand new studios, and him and Eli, like, teasing each other. Yep. You know, and their parents were like, guys, cut it out, you know, like you do with your brother when you're yep. little. It was really funny. Um, but he did a whole bunch of those type commercials. And that brought down whatever type of uh, dislike anybody had for him. It's just hard to dislike the guy. Plus, Manning wasn't one to come out and open his mouth anyway. With Mayfield, you have a guy that has, a, that, that has done zero so far in his pro career. I mean, he didn't even win. You know, when he, when he made it to the college football playoff, they lost. It was a great game uh, to, to Clemson, but, but he wound up losing. Uh, so I think that you have to win first before you're going to get the people that matter to pay attention to you. You can get the casual fans. You can get the fans that are going to be excited for little things. And have, like Cleveland fans have been so desperate for so long for anything and anybody with personality. I mean, the last real good quarterback Cleveland had was Bernie Kosar. Yep. You know, and Tim Couch. You know, I mean, look at all the different quarterbacks they've had. Tim Couch was the last one. Well, him and Kelly Holcomb actually made the playoffs. The last time Cleveland made the playoffs was 2002. Yep. When they lost to Pittsburgh. So, there's been like they've been bad for so long, and in last year there was this big hype created with him, and they were good last year. They came out of nowhere after losing their first two games, uh, and Mayfield started that against the Jets on Thursday night, and you know they toward the end of the year they were playing very well and beat some good teams, and you could see some real continuity. Um, and then Kitchen comes comes in, and there's this you know they bring in uh, OBJ, and I, I think he's. You know, OBJ's got his own issues. Yep. And uh, I think there's, there can be a lot of resentment that builds up when you don't win. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, all these things that don't matter start to matter. Yep. So that's definitely the case with Cleveland. Um, as far as, as Chicago, and this is what I noticed at the end of the game, and I, I think it's a little bit, depending on who your kicker is, okay? In the Bear game, they got to down around the 18-yard line, and they decided to sit on the ball. There was still about 50 seconds left. They, they could have gotten closer. I think at that point, though, they were so afraid that they were going to turn the ball over uh, like a freak play that they just, you know, only had one timeout left. Figure, okay, we'll just win the game now. This is close enough. In the Colts-Bronco game, this is almost the same exact thing happened, except this was at the 35-yard line. And the Colts had first and 10 with about a minute left, and they decided to really they weren't going to get any further. Now, you're at the 35-yard line. Now, I know you have Venetieri, but Venetieri had missed a field goal earlier in the game. And, you know, I'm thinking, geez, you know, this is kind of asking a lot from like a 40-something-year-old kicker to do. And, you know, of course, Venetieri split it right down the middle like he does. Venetieri very rarely misses kicks when it matters. I mean, he has missed some, but we're talking about a guy that's won two Super Bowls with game-winning kicks. Yep. And not, not easy ones either. So it's just like ingrained in him. But you have a, a rookie kicker for Chicago who made a field goal earlier in the year to win a game, and now he gets his foot on him, and, and he hooked it. Yep. 
And, and that's a frustrating part, because at least with the Colts, at least they did attempt to run the ball. You're right. I mean, they didn't get anywhere, but they did run, mm -hmm. uh, I believe right. it was three times, yeah, at least they, yeah, they into the line. The right. right. They didn't take a knee. At least they tried to advance. And that's a frustrating part. It's like you look at the way the trend in the NFL is with young head coaches, offensive minds. Now, Adam Gates obviously had a head coaching job and has experience, but I guess that makes it with him even more frustrating than with Nagy and Kitchens because he should know already with his offensive line banged up that – you know, you have to cater to your quarterback strengths and your team strengths, which is what I feel like right now the Bears and the Browns are not doing their head coaches for their offenses. Like you said, when Matt Nagy is sitting on the ball, he is telling you right now, even though it's a 41-yard field goal, he has more confidence in his kicker who already missed a kick earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. I mean, earlier in the game, excuse me, you said he had a game-winning field goal in Denver earlier in the year to win them the game, but he has more faith in his young kicker to hit a kick at home with, with the history that the Bears have of kicking woes instead of trusting his quarterback to just hand the ball off or trusting his running back not to fumble the ball. I get they're both young. David Montgomery's a rookie, and Mitchell Trubisky's in his third year. But isn't that also on the head coach that he doesn't have, I guess, enough of a game plan or enough scheming sense to put these guys in positions to succeed, and instead he's always thinking of the negative of, oh, man, I hope we don't fumble. Oh, man, if I drop Mitch back right here, I think he's either going to take a sack or, or a fumble or an interception. Like, there's more good or there's more bad that happened than good, which is, to me, not the attitude you have to have. And that is partly on the coach, too, of not doing his job to put these guys in the best positions to succeed. Again, Mitchell Trubisky deserves the blame, not trying to just write off and say he's not a falter. He absolutely is. But I think it's about time, at least in the case of the Bears, to start looking at head coach Matt Nagy, who had a nice year last year, to really turn the Bears around, start to question his offensive acumen because it's frustrating when you see him, a guy who's supposed to be an offensive mind, supposed to be, you know, comes from the Andy Reid tree. So that's talk about a guy with creativity and scheming his play players open. I mean, Matt Moore, even though they lost, was not the reason why the Chiefs lost to the Packers yeah, yeah. on Sunday Night Football. He right. played well. That is in part because Andy Reid put him in positions to succeed. Right. The Bears have weapons to throw to. Same with the Browns. right? We talk about Baker Mayfield's struggles. That is on Freddie Kitchens, not just I mean, with his in-game, again, with his in-game strategy is one thing, but not calling the right plays. Like you said, he came in last year after Hugh Jackson was fired. He was the offensive coordinator. That Browns team looked good, which is why I think they got so much hype last year because they finished the year strong. Now they add offensive weapons, and it's like, wow, look how the end of the year, this will only improve. Freddie Kitchens now, with more experience, will become a better play caller. Look at the weapons he has to throw to between tight ends, wide receivers, running backs. This offense for the Browns is going to be so hard to stop. And now, like you said, Baker Mayfield's struggling, partly because, listen, he, he has uh, trouble holding onto the ball, but that's also partly because Freddie Kitchens is not putting him in positions to succeed. They're holding, you know, they're calling these five- and seven-step dropbacks where their offensive line stinks. They're not giving enough time for the receivers to get open and get down the field, and Baker is either forced to throw the ball away and make a rushed throw, and it's resulting in interceptions, it's resulting in sacks, it's resulting in fumbles, and the, and the Bears, I mean, excuse me, the Browns' offense can't get out of their own way. And now I feel like that's the same thing with, with the Jets here. They had a great first half when Sam Donald comes back against the Cowboys. That second half, they score three points, hold on dear, for dear life, stop the two-point conversion in the fourth quarter, the Cowboys dominated. The Patriots game, not that I'm trying to write it off, but the Patriots' defense has been just so dominant this year. The Jets, as you mentioned historically, just didn't have a chance on Monday night, and they were just outclassed from the opening kick. Then you go into Jacksonville this week, and Sam Donald sacked eight times, throws for interceptions. Again, that's on him partly, but also what do we talk about when Luke Falk and Trevor Simeon were under center? The offensive line was bad, and they were getting sacked partly because they weren't making the right reads and reading the defense quick enough. 
Well, now Sam Darnold's getting sacked eight times. Again, that's on the offensive line, but it's also on Adam Gase for not calling the right plays to get the ball out of Absolutely. Darnold's hands quick enough. Absolutely. Get the ball right and just get it Absolutely. in space and just have his playmakers make plays. Instead, he's calling these long dropbacks again. Yep. Sam Darnold's no time. He's getting killed back there. That's what we talked about with the Jeff fan the other day. Right, exactly. And that, that has to fall on Gase, which, again, he's making these rookie head coach mistakes that Nagy and Kitchers are making, but... Gase has the most experience out of all of them. He had a previous head coaching job. He has experience with the, you know, with offense background. I know it's his first year with Darnold, and that was just his, th- really his third true game with his franchise quarterback. But, I mean, again, not, a, not as a Jets fan, but it's frustrating to watch when the offense is just so stagnant. But you know they have the ability. I mean, again, they have a, a top playmaking running back in Le'Veon Bell. The receivers are what they are, but Robbie Anderson is a deep threat. Jameson Crowder is at least a possession receiver. Mm-hmm. And it's just like they're – they just can't put these players in positions to succeed to where, again, the, there's blame. I'm not trying to take any blame away from Baker Mayfield or Mitchell Trubisky or Sam Darnold because they deserve it. But to me, it's time, and there has been blame, especially on Freddie Kitchens, but we start looking at Matt Nagy and start looking at Adam Gaser and, and asking questions like, what's going on here? How come you aren't calling the right plays? How come you guys aren't putting your players in positions to succeed? And I think, at least to me, that was the most frustrating part of this weekend because all three of those guys had their highlights of showing either coaching scared in Nagy's sense Coach clueless in Freddie Kitchen sense. And, I mean, we talked about it now for basically the, the entire time we've been on the airwaves here, about a month now, just Adam Gase's lack of adjustments and putting the Jets, and especially in Sam Darnold's position, to succeed. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the biggest argument is that they don't compete and that you figure whatever his system is. Do you, do you even know? I have no clue. I couldn't tell you. What his system is. It's like, a broken system. Yes. West Coast spread. Yeah. I, I couldn't tell. Like, it's a mix, I guess, of everything. Like, yeah, it's every- combo, but there's really no, like you, that's perfect. There's no identity with this offense. No. There's no way. And you don't know, right, as you said, what, are they yeah. trying to establish the run? Are they yeah. going to throw the ball 50 times? Mix of both? Right. You're right. There's no identity so far. Which makes it perfect because, you know, CJ, if you're listening while you're getting ready, could you tell us maybe <laughs> what, what the, the program is or, or, or what this system is? Because we're, we're totally lost. Speaking of which, like, like uh, Mark just said, C.J. DeSimone, host of the Jets Factor podcast, will join us when we come back from this break. Um, like I said, try to figure out the Jets' offensive system. It may be, even, even ask him this, like, is Adam Gates on the Greater on the minds have tried and failed. <laughs> we'll see if C.J. has the answer again. C.J. DeSimone, host of the Jets Factor podcast, will join us next when the morning boys, Ryan Hickey, Mark Everkelly, Austin Tidebaum, come back on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. That's me in the corner. Didn't do that for Friday. Yes, if you missed it, the Morning Boys here, Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett, Kelly, Austin, Teitelbaum, Last Friday show, we had our first ever Friday sing-along. <laughs> uh, it was a Believe American Girl, right, by Tom Petty. Yeah, it was yeah. dope. Definitely Mark was the star of the show. I think me and Austin did a pretty good job backup, to be we honest. Were the, but we had we the Temptations. It was sick. <laughs> <laughs> we the but, um, but that would definitely be a Friday tradition. We are taking requests if you want to give us a call, one 9977 What song would you like to hear us sing on Friday? It will be a new Friday tradition. We are going to be joined by C.J. DeSimone. Actually, no, we just got a message from him. Um, Said, not going to be able to make it, Mark. His son is in the hospital. Oh, geez. Yeah. Hopefully everything is okay with CJ's son, host of the Jets Factor podcast. Hopefully we can get him on maybe either later on in the week or, uh, or something. But, you know, since we're, since we're going to talk about the Jets, let's talk about the Jets here, Mark. They lose to Jacksonville in Jacksonville, 29-15. Mark, San- uh, Mark Sanchez. Oh, my goodness gracious. Sam Darnold throws three picks, sacked eight times, 
So I know, I believe you picked the Jaguars to win on Friday. We weren't expecting much from the Jets. In terms of bounce back from that just embarrassing performance on Monday night at home against the Patriots, do they show you anything? Again, they lost by two touchdowns to a Jaguars team that now is under 500, was, I mean, now at 500, was under 500 coming into the game. Do they show you anything positive to take away from this game, losing by two touchdowns, or are you still disappointed, again, after that just horrific effort on Monday night? Uh, by the Jets against the Patriots? Or, uh, no, yeah. the Jets uh, against the Jaguars. Yeah, well, no, I, I, I think that the way the, the game started, where you had Darnold going 7-for-7 seven seven and throwing a touchdown pass, but then we saw what th- that's been plaguing them all year is Jaguars made an adjustment and the send in the clowns part didn't do anything except for one drive, and he throws three picks, and essentially... You have a quarterback that's young and inexperienced making Darnold look like he's the rookie. Or right. he's the one that doesn't have experience. Is it Judy Collins? Yeah, this is my, this is my favorite version. <laughs> um, so then you have um, just total confusion of what, what exactly do they do? What exactly is their strengths? What exactly are their weaknesses? Why are they having such a struggle against... Uh, what do you have? Eight sacks. Eight sacks. You know, and I understand that there's going to be uh, that the offensive line is going to have its issues, but you can see when the team lines up at the you know when the opposition lines up against the Jets in their defensive stance, the Jets don't know how to defend just about anything they're throwing at them. You saw in the backfield, uh, Le'Veon Bell staying, keeping him back there to block. And he might pick up a guy, but there's two other or three other guys coming, coming clear. Right. And you know now with uh, Osemele out, and that's another mess that the Jets really screwed him on. I mean, you can't do those things to players. These things matter. And you have C.J. Mosley, who was a huge, you know, that that guy is, if not the best middle linebacker in football, one of the best. Um, and then they also had the injury from the guy that they uh, signed last year from Tennessee, the middle linebacker. Avery Williams. Yeah, Avery Williams. Right. So now you two linebackers. Yeah. And um, also one of the rookies they drafted um, that took over for Mosley. See, this is, this is where I have problems with this chemo brain. I, I forget, like, easy things. I can remember, like, who won the World Series and, like, specific things about 1980, but I can't remember something like this. Uh, Hewitt, right? Now, is it Neville Hewitt? I, I, sure. I, yeah. Well, I, 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 he's another linebacker that got hurt. So all these guys that have their replacements are now being injured. And this is where the depth comes in. So I think the best things the Jets, the Jets did yesterday was trading Williams to the Giants so they get a third and a fifth. And the fifth is a conditional. If the Giants re-sign him, then they'll get a fourth-round pick. Right. So I, I think that's what they need now. Let's, if you're the Jets and if you're Stephen uh, – no, Joe, Joe Douglas. Joe Stephen Douglas, Stephen yeah. Douglas. you know who Stephen Douglas was? I don't He know. was someone who actually uh, ran against – um, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, wow. And he debated him. Yeah, we're uh, going back to the <laughs> 1800s, I know. the presidential uh, I know, races. Right. Yeah, here we go. See, it's, it's amazing. My, that's how my mind works. Uh, so I think that giving Douglas draft picks and letting him rebuild this organization is the best thing they can do because he's shown he can do that. Oh, absolutely. And you're right. And coming off of Sunday's performance, you know – I'm, not try- I'm really not trying to be a Sam Darnold defender. I'm really not. But 
you look at just the offensive line, again, injuries there. Ryan Khalil gets hurt. Like I said, Osemele, not that he was great when he was in, but he was at least serviceable out for the year. Now, just that whole, like I said, whole mess is, is just embarrassing for the Jets. Uh, really a black eye on their franchise the way that was all handled. But when I mean, you look at Le'Veon Bell, nine carries, 23 yards. The, the rushing, gra- uh, the ground game got absolutely nothing done. And you have... A, a defense in Jacksonville, at least, that while Jalen Ramsey was traded, still have a ton of talent, especially in that front seven, um, to where you know they'll get after you. And it's like the Jets did nothing to prepare for that, did nothing, like you said, to adjust to that. And it's just frustrating because now I feel like, you know, it's a beat, you know, we're beating a dead horse now just talking about lack of adjustments, you know, lack of offensive line protection. Sam Darnold, Carlos at the ball. I mean, this is something that, that did happen in USC. He was. You know, he take he does take risks throwing the ball. We saw that first pick he threw, you know, breaking a sack, rolling out and throwing a ball that probably just threw away. He was too tight with coverage and just throws that bad pick. But well, he'll I, learn. I think he'll learn. I think a lot of times his his turnovers are forced. Right. Like you think I, I got to make a play and you know we're losing and I I, I think he does a lot of that. I'm and, with you. And it's like almost like not not a pick you that's a good pick, right? Because really, there's no interceptions that are good. But at least it's one of those where he's aggressive, trying to make a play, like you said, and just trying to help his team out. It's not he just made a bad read right. and just exactly. threw his triple coverage. Really do. He's very good, I think, at, at identifying a read. He's just, he has that slight hesitation where he doesn't trust himself yet to make the natural right. um, aggressive move that, that he's seeing. Like right. He doesn't trust his body to do that. I heard one of the other um, commentators talking about that, too. I think it was Steve Young, actually. Steve Young saying that he's watched him and he's making the reads with his with his mind. It's just that um, because he's either constantly under pressure, um, that the ability to throw the ball to the right place because he's is on his back feet or you know that 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 part of it he hasn't he hasn't adjusted to yet. Right, which and that when that's the case, that's you know you take it as a positive in the sense that there's ton of room for growth. And there is potential there where, right, he is seeing the right thing. It's just his offense line, unfortunately, is not giving him the time. The running game is giving the defense no, th- you know, no worries at all where they can just tee off and prepare for the pass. And like you said, right, when there was, when there was those aggressive plays, at least he's trying to make a play. And like I said, being a young quarterback in his second full year starting, those are chances that you can make to improve on, learn from, and at least be better on once, uh, once the season and once his career goes on. So here's this stat, okay, uh, about the Jets' offensive line. So far, the Jets have rushed for 447 yards, and they've lost 216 yards through sacks. All right? Wow. They're just the second team in the Super Bowl era, which is since 1966, uh, to run for less than 450 yards and lose 200-plus yards through sacks over the first seven games. Wow. The only other team to do that was the 1991 Colts, who went 1-15. <laughs> and you know who they won winners against? Uh, let me take a guess. Was it the Jets? It was at the Meadowlands. It was 28-27 on a rain-soaked Sunday. I still remember this. Okay. Jeff George. And I, I, Jeff George was the first-round pick, the number one overall pick for the Indianapolis Colts. And they got him on a trade with the Rams. And Jeff George, I believe, won 21 road games in his career. And as a Colt, I think he only won 12 and he was 4-0 lifetime against the Jets at the Meadowlands. And that year, the Colts had an abysmal offense. And he threw three touchdowns that day against the Jets. And he threw only eight combined in his 15 other starts. Wow. This was a guy who came out. I remember, 93, the Jets were 7-4 and four and playing a bad Colts team at home with Boomer Esiason. They had won five straight because they started off that year four and two or two and four. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, then they wind up beating the Giants 10-6, to and then they went on a win streak. They're playing the Colts, who are awful, and they lose 10-6 to or 6-3. or, or, six to three or uh, They didn't score any touchdowns, and they wanted Boomer wind up throwing a pick late. After the Jets stopped the Colts on like fourth and two, Boomer got the ball back with like a minute left, and then he threw an interception, and then the Colts kicked the game-winning field goal. And I, I believe that was Venetary too. Like back then, that, that, no, no, it wasn't Venetary then. Venetary was sort of with the Patriots. But, but that, that's the type of thing that happens, happened to the Jets against the Colts. So the Colts only won one game in 1991 was against the Jets. The 1980 Saints only won one game. That was against the Jets, 1-15. And the week before they came into Shea Stadium then, they blew a 35-7 to lead against the 49ers. Before the 49ers were the 49ers. This was the 1980s. They didn't win their first uh, Super Bowl until 1981. Bill Walsh was still an unknown at that point. Joe Montana was still an unknown at that point. Ronnie Lott wasn't even drafted yet. And I think at the time, that was the biggest comeback in NFL history, 28 points. Three times the Jets have blown 21-point leads at home. So you're saying there's a theme here. And funny, yeah, there is. I'm just giving you these things. Next yeah. week, the Jets do go down to Miami to play the Dolphins. It would be something else if the Dolphins go 1-15 without one win being against the Jets. But well, I want to play them twice, so. Right. But at least, that, you know, talking about at least next week, the immediate future, talking about teams only having one win being against the Jets. Well, the Dolphins have that chance to get their one win this year uh, against, at home against the Jets. But how about this? I, you, Christopher Johnson, before the game in Jacksonville, was talking with fans, and he said to one fan, I hope we show up this week. How concerning is that when you have the CEO of the team questioning the effort and hoping at least that they show up in a game? Again, coming off an embarrassment loss at home to the Patriots. Is that, does that ring any alarm bells for well, you? Well, I think it shows that he doesn't know what to expect. And you can't have that. The one thing about Parcells, when they brought Parcells in, and this is what I say, like, and this is what I hope we, we get the chance to talk about hockey later in the show. I wrote uh, an article on the Islanders yesterday. Okay. Um, when the Islanders brought in uh, the GM, Lamarillo. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Lamarillo, who proved himself with the Devils winning Stanley Cups. Then he goes to Toronto, and he rebuilds an organization that was awful and turns them into a winner. Uh, then he leaves there. Before they could win, he leaves there. He gets offered the, the Islanders job. And you could see the Islanders two years ago had exactly the same team with Tavares, and they finished, what, 80-something uh, 80, 80 points in last place or second-to-last place in the Metropolitan Division. Last year, with the same roster minus Tavares, they win they get 103 points, which is the most they've had since, uh, I believe, the 83-84 season when they lost their, their final, uh, you know, they won four straight, then they lost in their fifth try. So they, 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 they actually had home ice advantage for the first time since that 1984 playoff year. Mm-hmm. So all these things, uh, Lamarillo has brought to them. So you know the Islanders. Like, I could go to sleep at night knowing the Islanders are in good hands. I do not go to sleep well at night knowing the Jets are in good hands. Number one, because of their owner. They're, whether it was Leon Hess or, or Robert Johnson or Christopher Johnson, you get the sense that they don't know what they're doing. And, if they do, and here's a big clue that they don't know what they're doing. They hired people to, fire, uh, to find them a coach. The guys that they hired were NFL executives. There's a combination of the two that have been around for a long time. I could find their names. Their names are very uh, recognizable. Uh, one of them actually was the guy that built the, uh, the Packers organization as the GM. 
So they hire these two guys to find them the next coach. And they find them Todd Bowles. I'm saying, why in the world are you paying? Like, I know this gets done, that you have, you know, these companies that, that you right, know, find like employees for you. Right, search but, firms. To, yeah, usually it's, it's, it's for other businesses. And, okay. In the NFL, it's, it, they're all, you know, pretty much everybody knows everybody else. So it's, it's like, a, you know, a, like a locker room mentality type thing. So you shouldn't have to go out and hire people to find the right guy. That, to me, is just pure laziness, uninterested. I don't care enough to invest my time into this. Let me hire people. What, what motivation do they have? To find the best guy. Well, I mean, you're paying them. I so. know, but still, are, did, are they have a stake in the Jets? Do they own the Jets? Do they have season tickets? Are they are they financially tied to them? No, they're just getting paid to do this. But it's like anything. To be fair, like their reputation. So if the Jets hire the search firm, which again, many teams around all four major sports mm-hmm. do. I know. If they get a good head coach, they lay out the qualities, they find what they want. Now other teams realize, well, this. You know, X company here got the Jets this great coach. We should use them because they were able to weed through some few candidates, saw a diamond in the rough, and got him, right? So yeah. I think there is motivation for these search firms to get the best candidate and make sure he is the best fit for the Jets because it's a reflection on them and allow them to be hired by other teams and other leagues to do the same thing for them. So I think it's, it, it is good business, and that's the motivation for these search firms to find the best candidate because it's a good reflection on them, helps business, and keeps them, you know, at the top and, you know, at least well, competition-wise, not have other search firms hired. Yeah, I, I, I know why they do it. But I, I'm just saying that, for me, I don't want to see my owner do that for my football team. Okay, because I, I think that the owner should be invested where he knows what type of head coach he wants. He knows, he has his hand on the organization. You know, Jerry Jones has his, had his hand under... Uh, on the Cowboys. Now, it might be too much. I was just going to say, okay. is that, I don't know if pointing but, to Jerry Jones the no, last 20 years well, is no, a, I, a good comparison. But, but he also bought them, and he turned their whole franchise around when he brings yep. in Jimmy Johnson. Yep. What his problem was that there comes a point where these guys have such a big ego, mm-hmm. where they think, no, they're winning because of me. And I think that's the power struggle him and Jimmy Johnson got into, yep. where he should have just shut up and let him, look, I made the right hire. This guy obviously knows what he's doing. He's real big. My whole team, he thought that he was on the same level as Johnson was, and he wasn't. You could see that they have not won a Super Bowl since then. So right. now, as much as I would can appreciate an owner like Jerry Jones because he's involved, just like Steinbrenner. Steinbrenner, when he first came to the Yankees and they were bought from CBS, Steinbrenner actually said he didn't want to be a hands-on owner. Can you believe that? <laughs> okay, uh, and then. They win the World Series in 77 and 78, and then they go on this long stretch for them where they they don't appear in a World Series from 1981 to 1996. And what happened with Steinbrenner is he kind of trusted the guys he brought in, Gene Michaels, Bob Watson, uh, the current GM that they have now, Brian Cashman. Cashman's been there since he took over for Bob Watson. Been okay. there a long time, like I said. Yeah, a, lot of a long time, and, and a lot of these other guys were fired, and okay, but they trusted him with it because he was an, a guy that has been with the organization for a long time. He knew the ins and outs. Who, who, what confidence do you have that Woody Johnson or Chris Johnson have, or listening to the right people that are going to advise them the best way? Ron Wolf was one of the guys that they hired. And and Charlie Casserly. These are two really brilliant NFL minds, okay? But do I want 
uh, my owner going out and saying someone who's not involved in an organization to find us the next head coach. I don't. I'm just saying for me. I understand why they do it, but I want my owner to be like, look, I'm, I'm going to do my uh, – uh, all the money that I have, all the, the, the money that I charge these fans for season tickets yep. um, that I've wasted you know, the last 50 years, people at Chase Stadium and then at Meadowlands and now, and now this new stadium – that uh, have not had, we've never hosted an AFC championship game. We've only won two divisions. Uh, we need to change what we're doing. What is the one thing we can point to that has given us success? Oh, we hired Bill Parcells. Like, there was Bill Cower out there. That he'd be a, a great guy to bring in and say, look, I have no idea what I'm doing. The organization is yours. Build it like you did Pittsburgh. Okay, now he had other guys, like uh, Don, uh, Donahue was his, was his GM, and there were other guys that understood the Steelers system, which was, you know, how to draft specific. I mean, Steelers always draft, like, linebacker after linebacker. They lose guys constantly. In the 90s, they always lost guys to free agency. But there would be another guy right there because they knew what they were doing. So the Jets don't do that. They have no idea what what, how to draft, what, what they're drafting. They've drafted all these defensive guys. This defensive line that they're supposed to have, you look at all the draft picks they've spent on a defensive line. Even Quinn Williams, who was probably, people who said, the best player in the draft, defensive player. Yep. He has made zero impact. Uh, Leonard Williams, another guy that fell to them, supposedly fell out of the, out of the heavens to the sixth pick. Yep. And now he, got, he gets traded. Sheldon Richardson, uh, Muhammad Wilkerson, uh, right. Quinton Copels, okay? Right. These guys are, 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 you know, Darren Lee. You cannot miss year after year after year after year. The second-round picks are even more of a joke than the first-round picks. Christian Hackenberg, you know, going back to right. uh, the, the, the guys they drafted in the 90s, uh, Kellen Clements, and, and, you know, some of these guys you've never heard of. Well, the reason why you've never heard of them is because they never did anything. Right. All right? So you have to draft better and you have to know that the person you're entrusting this to knows what he's doing how do you know what he's doing he has a track record that he can point to i got like Isaac newsom for baltimore he rebuilt that organization i hope to rebuild that organization when he came over from cleveland well actually i think he just stayed in a role because he was with cleveland right. and then when they moved to baltimore okay so this is that that's how you start so who do i go after now if i'm a judge certainly not adam gaze who's proven to do nothing but lose he, won, he made the playoffs big deal, 9-7 and seven or 10-6, and six, big deal. They lost the first game, and they've got, they, they were getting worse yep. during his tenure. And there was no, you know, Tannehill was a guy that you would look at and say, maybe he was, more was expected out of Tannehill than what was expected out of Darno at that time. But then Tannehill kind of became a guy you sort of forgot about because you had, he had no idea what kind of system or what kind of thing he was going to run, and then he had injuries that got in the way. And now you have the same case with Darno. Now, I mean, he couldn't control what happened with, uh, with the mono. With yep. the mono. But I, I, I think that they're all, all clamoring for it. We need an identity. We need a system that is going to be proven. Guys that we trust. If your players trust you, they'll do anything for you. You saw the guys like, uh, I remember Leon Johnson was a guy that just drafted in 97. And you could see Parcells talking to him at training camp. You know, like, uh, you're, you're not a Wake Forest. You know, you're not playing Wake Forest now. These guys are coming in this league. You know, the players trust you. Right. They yep. know you've won. They can, they can put the fact in, look, if I do what this guy's telling me, I'm going to be successful. 
you don't have that with these players in Adam Gaze. You take yeah. a guy like Le- Le'Veon Bell, who was a dynamic running back. They spent all this money off him, and he's not even being utilized. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm going to try to attempt to not speak out of both sides of my mouth here because it might sound like it, but I'm going to agree and disagree with you. Uh-huh. I agree with you. When we were talking about Christopher Johnson's comments here, right, talking about I hope they show up, I hope they're ready to play. That is, right, a direct indictment on the head coach for not having his players ready and, like you said, not having their, his players believing. Because if they believed in it, if they believed the offensive system, if they believed this team is still a good team despite their record, just have had a, a few bad breaks go their way, they would come out, play as hard as they can. They would not get embarrassed on Monday night against the Patriots. They would not seemingly sleepwalk through the Jaguars game, especially after getting off to a hot start and going up 7 nothing. Things are looking pretty good. Okay, here we go. And they don't. And that's, like you said, I think it's a direct indictment on Adam Gase not having his players ready, not having his players believing in him to where they'll do anything for him. They'll run through a wall. And despite the record, they'll block all the outside noise and just play as hard as they can. We have not seen that this year. But this is where, so in terms of the Jets going forward, having identity, having a direction, I am both intrigued that there's hope, but I'm also very scared of how they got here, right? Because Adam Gase is hired. Mike McCadden, like you said, they had the search firm. Mike McCadden is the general manager. He hires Adam Gase. What was it? Not even three months later, Adam Gase strikes a coup, gets. Um, yeah, yeah. McCagney McCagney fired, fire. now, they yeah. land on Joe Douglas, right? Yeah. And I think Joe Douglas would be a very good in this position, and I think he already has the right mindset. Treading Leonard Williams, he got two, a third and a fifth round pick for Leonard Williams, a guy who will be a free agent after the year. Trade him to a team that has one more win than the Giants, uh, than the Jets. Think about that. The Giants aren't in contention. The Giants don't need a pass rusher. Well, they do, but they don't need one this year to try to get wins and try to make a playoff push. He got two draft picks for a guy that they were not going to re-sign and basically let walk at the end of the year that, at least it sounds like, there was not much interest in from the rest of the league. Mm-hmm. So he was able to swindle the Giants in that move for draft picks, and I think this is a guy, at least, that if he knows how, or he does know how, the success in the NFL works. It's through the draft. Look at teams like the Colts. Exactly. The Colts have drafted well those last three years under Chris Ballard. Yep. Look at the position they're in. They get injuries. Guys slide in, like you said. Like the Steelers. Right. There's so many John teams Lynch. that you could point to yep. that have great depth because they draft well. It's not about free agency and hitting home runs, signing big guys. Right. It's that, about That's a mistake. Yes, People absolutely. who do that actually destroy their organization. Right. You cannot spend a lot of money on big-time free agents that are going to kill your salary cap and basically lessen the ability you have to bring in guys in the draft that you can keep. Develop your own players so you can keep them. Right, exactly. Free agency is the way not to go in the NFL. It's only really used for if you are one or two pieces away, that's when you break the, break the bank to bring in someone. You can't build a team through free agency. It just no, doesn't work. you can't. And the only, like, the only maybe one guy that you would do that with is a quarterback. Right. Because that can be a rare thing to find. Right, exactly. Right? Like what the Vikings did. Yep, right. But you're not going out. In free agency, it's all right. This is, we'll rebuild the team through free agents. No, we'll sign can't. a few big contracts, and we'll be good to go. Right. It doesn't happen overnight. And we've seen the Jets bad this year, bad, this, uh, bad last year, bad this year. They made a nice splash of free agency, but so far between injuries and ineffectiveness, it hasn't worked out. So how do you win, you know, like I said, through the draft? Now Joe Douglas collecting draft picks. I think, I mean, it seems like when he was with the Eagles, at least, he had a good eye for talent. Um, he couldn't be any worse than Mike McCagney, like you said, with London Williams traded. There is zero players on this team from the 2015 draft class. Zero. A direct indictment, like you right. said, on Mike McCagden and their ability to draft because they swung on missed on every right. single player they got. You got that in front of you, right? Yeah. Okay, read off the picture. Oh, so I don't have the exact. Let me get the 2015 Jets draft class. I just saw that note the other day after right. the trade. Number two was Hackenberg. Uh, number one was, uh, was Williams. 
Um, I believe the third was a linebacker that, um, this is where my brain uh, freezes up. Yeah, okay. you, you, got you, it right you, here. Yeah. Sorry. So the Jets' 2015 draft class, as you said, Leonard Williams was the number six overall pick, oh, traded away 2016, I believe, right? to the Giants. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Devin Smith, their second-round pick yeah. out of Ohio State, Ohio State, often injured, was there for three years. Nothing. Lorenzo Malden. I'll be yeah, honest, I've never heard of him. He was a linebacker. Two that, years. Uh, yeah, he's played a couple of years, made a couple of starts. Um, they cut him, uh, actually, beginning of last year. Or the, yeah. Yep. So Bryce Petty now. We're in the fourth round. They've Bryce had Petty. a one draft pick per round. Bryce Petty, Bryce Petty, supposed to be possibly the answer. Never really got his chance. Couldn't even really beat out uh, Christian Hackenberg. Mm-mm. Seemed like for a while. Two years, done. Jarvis Harrison didn't even suit up in a game in the fifth round. And the seventh rounder, Jarvis Deion Harrison. Simon, was there for one year. Yeah, defensive lineman. So six picks the Jets had in 2015. They are all gone. And like you said, just, I mean, some of that, the, most of these guys aren't even in the league. That was their first draft of McCagnan. Okay, and now what got the guy before him fired was their 2014 draft. Now, read, you want a good laugh, read off that one. Uh, give me one second here. I'm sorry. Oh, I, thought, I thought you had but a football reference. I had that. I uh, did. I just exited out. Um, but you said, right. So this is where, like, so as I bring this up in here in a quick second, this is where I get both encouraged and nervous because the Jets with Joe Douglas, I really do think are in good hands. I think he is the type of guy that realizes you have to build for the draft. I think he has a good eye for talent. I think he can really bring some real players in here in the next few years and build the Jets on the ground up. What I'm nervous about is how they got to Joe Douglas, right? They didn't go after last year, look at, their, look at their organization, look at their head coach, look at their GM, fire everyone, clean house, and start over. No. They trusted their GM. They're going to give him one more year, Mike McCagney. They said, we'll, I, although they brought a search firm, they all said, we will let you pick the next head coach. Right. I, I know. Which you would think would tie Adam Gase's success to Mike McCagney. Mm-hmm. They would be locked together. And McCagney have at least one or two more years right. to show what he has. Right. Try to get some good draft picks. Right. And get going. And there is that, that hope that you will learn through your mistakes. Right. They right. Obviously, the mistake he made, because when he came in in 2015, he had the draft but he also had a boatload of money to use under the salary cap. And he brought in Darrell uh, Rivas, or Darrell Rivas, who, yep. who, you know, was the, the, one of the best, if not the best player in franchise history. Yep. All right. Hall of, Hall of Famer. After winning a Super Bowl with the Patriots, and they had gotten uh, in the trade for him, they had gotten draft picks back when they traded him to Tampa Bay. So now that you, you're getting him, kind of after giving him away, you're getting him back. And, but he had a, a solid first year, and then he totally fell off. But, again, a guy you invested a lot of money to. Yep. All right? So that's, that's an example of spending a lot of money at a position that is important. Obviously, corner is, but it's not something that should take up more than, you know, $15 million on a salary cap, you know? And right, I, just throwing money at bad players or having right, bad contracts that really right. hold down your team in the long term, and especially in the short term when Drovers, like you said, the second stint doesn't really work out. Mm-hmm. That's when you both hamstring your team short term and long term. Right, they bring it. They brought in Fitzpatrick to be a, a backup. Then he wound up becoming a starter after uh, yep. the, the starting quarterback got got punched in the face. Geno Smith, Geno yep. Smith, okay, over a, a few hundred dollars. Yeah, a, a, from a, a linebacker that they drafted. That actually was showing promise. And then he went to Rex Ryan with Buffalo. Uh, and he, he didn't develop. But th- right. these were the guys that Dutch spend their later round picks on. Right. Okay. Now, if you look at the draft that Parcells was there, okay, Parcells did not have a first round draft pick in 98 or 99. 
and or, or excuse me, in '98 they did. They had James Ferrier, but they wind up. Uh, yeah, they had the number one overall pick. Um, excuse me, in '97. In '97 they drafted. Instead of drafting the number one overall pick, which they would have should have been Peyton Manning, because if Peyton Manning came in after his junior year, he would have been the number one overall pick. Uh, yep. The Jets wind up trading that, and then they wind up drafting James Farrier, who Farrier was a guy that didn't really develop with the Jets. He goes to the Steelers, wins the Defensive Player of the Year. Yep. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's the, the Jets have had struggles drafting up and down their in, entire franchise history. Like I said, it set them back, and it has Mike McKagan has set them back um, for years. And even you look, I mean, just going back to a, the last point I was to make here, Mike McKagan, not only do you let him pick the head coach, you let him go through the draft process, yep. draft players, sign free agents, only to realize, you know, have Adam Gase be like, eh, I don't really like this guy, I don't like his philosophy, we're not meshing, get him out. And you have Christopher Johnson, a guy you just hired, as a head coach, but you know what? I believe you more than I believe Mike McCagnan. Right. Let's get rid of him. So that's what gets me most nervous about the Jets. They ended up getting, I think, the right general manager. Mm-hmm. I think we'll see with Adam Gase. I do have more faith in Adam Gase than a lot of Jets fans do. I think it's a wait and see. But I think you have at least a GM that has a plan for once, right? How often right. do you, he has a plan. We're going to build through the draft. I think he can identify um, – good players, and at least you see the weak points. The average line needs a lot of help. The receivers, like, there's so many points, linebackers, where the Jets need help, right? Yeah. I th- so I like the addition of Douglas. It's just it gets me worried about how they got there, right? It's almost like just because the result is correct doesn't mean the process, how you got there, is correct. Right. And to me, that's where the dysfunction of the Jets still remains all these, all these years later, and it's just it gives me pause of really thinking that this team can actually – be a legitimate contender, be a legitimate you know, model franchise because you have your general manager um, basically being there, you know, getting fired, and then hiring a new guy, although he's the right guy. You have your owner now coming out and basically being like, yeah, I don't know if I'll show up this week, a direct, you know, direct correlation with the head coach and having his players ready to play. So there's just a lot of question marks and just a lot of dysfunction through the Jets, even though there are signs to be excited for. You just can't because this team just doesn't give you, you know, they're not, all on the same page. Or think, think logically for a second. You decide to trust and give your GM a second chance. And you could have fired him when you fired Todd Bowles. But they don't. They say, okay, we have salary cap money available. We're going to let this guy have a second chance to rebuild the organization. And after they, after they let him, and he brings in, you know, the, he didn't miss on Mosley. Mosley just got hurt. Uh, I, I don't think. Right, that know, is bad luck, but right, you're right. Debating on whether or not that much money should be on a running back, which we could see running backs are pretty much a diamond dozen. Yep. Okay. And so she's coming off a year off with, yeah. it's unprecedented. We've never seen an NFL guy sit out a year and you know, we don't know how he's going to play the right. year after. Like, I mean, yeah, like I know Ricky Williams sat out and he came, but he was, was a little bit older. Okay? Right. This is a guy that, you know, led the NFL in yards from scrimmage. Okay. Yeah. And was a consistent game breaking runner with the Steelers. So you bring him in, you spend a lot of money on a, on a running back with no offensive line. You don't invest in the offensive line. And then you let the GM, who you're giving a second chance, run a draft. That's vitally important. So they had the third pick, and a lot was discussed. Should they trade down? Because they had the Raiders with, I believe the Raiders had three first-round picks. Yep. You had a bunch of teams that had two first-round picks. Do you, you know, even the, the Giants, the, the Giants had two first-round picks. They could have swapped picks with the Giants, gotten their 18th overall pick, gotten a second and a third, like set themselves up where they had two, three uh, more draft picks in the, in the early rounds, which was a deep draft for offensive linemen. Yep. They don't do that. They decide, okay, no, we want this one guy. We want Quinn and Williams. He's going to be a difference maker. 
And you see, when you have holes everywhere, bringing in one guy who to a system that nobody knows. I mean, obviously, Greg Williams is a little better on, on defense, so you, you feel a little more comfortable. But overall, the organization is still very, you know, un, un, there's not a lot of confidence in the head coach. And that's kind of trickles down. If you have a head coach that, you know, the buck stops here, like a, like a Harbaugh, like a Belichick, like a, a Parcells, uh, like, you know, like a Brian Billick with, uh, yep. with Baltimore or, you know, to a lesser extent, McCarthy with, with the Packers, guys that consistently have won. You see that they're the ones that are going to take the hit. So everyone after, under them, you know, Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh would purposely bitch out uh, George Seifert, who was his uh, defensive coordinator at the time, just because he wanted to show his players. You know, Mike Holmgren was another guy. He would just yell at them just because he wanted to show his players who was in charge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the players would be like, geez, if he could yell at this guy, he's really going to yell at me. Right, or and that's he, what exactly what Bill Belichick does with Tom Brady. And that's how the Patriot way is formed. Like he said, wow, if Tom Brady, this guy's been so successful his entire career, six rings, mm-hmm. if he's getting scolded out in practice, in film session, you know, I can get yelled at. And right, that's, what, you know, that's where mm-hmm. you hear the Patriot way and how that's founded for and why so many players are strict to it. Right, because everyone is held accountable and names and egos are checked at the door. Right, and they, okay, so, so here's more example of the Jets' inability to draft. All right. Now, we're going back to 2013 when, uh, the trade that they, when they traded Revis. They got a first-round pick. Turns into a guy, D. Milliner, who was from Alabama. He figured comes from a winning organization. He's out of the NFL now. Sheldon Richardson was the number, uh, another first-round pick that year. He's no longer with the team. Yep. Geno Smith, the second-round pick, who, who had uh, the start of his senior year at, at West Virginia, was very good, had a very good junior year. But the second half of his senior year was a mess. He was like the Heisman frontrunner. I remember the first yeah. like, five games he had, he was lighting up the world, throwing mm-hmm. for like 500 yards a game. Right, yep. He was the darling of college football for the first month, month and a half, and like you said, fell off. Mm-hmm. Then they have uh, offensive, decided to go offensive line first round. Brian Winters, still with the team, but has not established himself at all. Odeo Bushu, which is a tackle. Uh, it's been on a practice squad forever, nothing. William Campbell and Tommy Bohannon. Bohannon actually was a guy, a fullback, who started a couple games. Um, not a bad player, but... Um, you know, for a six-round pick, or you know, it was, wasn't that bad, okay? Uh, you know, the, the year before, you have Quentin Copel's number one, Stephen Hill number two, which was a guy like um, the guy they drafted from Ohio State uh, in 2015, uh, Devin Smith, was a speed guy, uh, couldn't catch the ball. Second-round pick. Demario Davis, a linebacker, wound up being pretty good, doesn't stay with the organization. This is 2012. Yep. Josh Bush. Terrence Ganaway, Robert Griffin, Antonio Allen actually wasn't bad, uh, the seventh-round pick in 2012. He actually scored a touchdown off the pick six from Brady. Right. Um, but, but to your they, point, they, right, the Jets have missing. not had a successful no. history of drafting players. No. And like you said, you hope that at least Joe Doug- Douglas can reverse that course and actually hit on some of these guys. Like I said, I mean, we can go back year after year after year. Right. We can highlight guys and maybe, maybe one that's – forget had success with the Jets – has you know, just a, a decent NFL career and is signed with another team outside of them. You're right. Rarely do any of these guys live out their full rookie contracts. Right. And rarely do these guys, after being released by the Jets, sign somewhere else and have success. There is very few guys, like I said, we can point to mm-hmm. that have success elsewhere or success in general in the NFL. Like I said, it's a direct yeah. indictment on the Jets. They're general managers of the past. And there's their whole organizational and it, they were talking about structure the, of having success depending, in the draft. Depending who, you're, who you hear from. People said that Jamal Adams was being offered. Why in the world? Okay, 
you, you tried this already with Calvin Pryor in 2014. It was uh, supposed to be the next safety, the next game-breaking safety that they draft. They gave up on him, traded him to Cleveland. He's not in the NFL anymore. Jason Morrow, second-round pick, not in the NFL anymore. Dexter Kugel, third-round pick, not in the NFL anymore. So you have Adams and Marcus May, the two guys you're supposed to rebuild your de- defense around. These are the guys you've got to keep. Adams, he looks so despondent after a loss, he looks like he's going to kill himself. Like, that's the kind of players you want. Right. All right? You, you don't trade him. This is a guy you build your team around. Yep. And if I'm uh, the owner, I, I bring him in, and I say, okay, you're, you're going to be part of this decision now because this is your, your team, your defense. Uh, you know, we want to hear from you as far as what you see. You know, you, you can include him in, in, in that discussion because he, you know, like when Michael Irvin was drafted by the Cowboys, they were awful. They were drafted by the Cowboys, I believe, in 88, okay? And he got so excited when Jimmy Johnson came in because Johnson was a guy he had, had been his coach in Miami. And Irvin said to him, okay, coach, these are guys you got to get rid of. Boom, 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 I was going to say, boom. there's stories Michael Irvin ratting out guys who, after losses, were just like, oh, you know, we got a paycheck. Don't be so upset. Right. And he would go right to the coach and be like, listen, these this guys aren't guy upset. Right. And listen, that's just right. You, you need those guys in the locker room because they have to held, hold each other responsible. And like you said, it's about winning and, and losing. And if the culture in the locker room is not there, the results on the field won't show. And like I said, we've just gone through the history of the Jets. Yeah, it's been just we could do that forever. Right, yeah, a debacle. Amazing. And you hope that at least Joe Douglas... Well, again, while it was, it was a carousel getting there, just a circus landing him, I do think they got the right guy. And, again, you hope that at least going forward he can try to bring the Jets out of their mediocrity and try to build a foundation that we haven't really seen um, in the Jets franchise. So when we come back, Game 6, World Series, Astros up three games to two. When we last talked to you on Friday, the Nationals were up 2-0 at home trying to really put away the series. Didn't win a game. The road team has won all five games so far. We'll talk about if the Astros can close it out in Game 6 tonight. Justin Verlander, Steven Strasburg on the Hill. Still some college football to get to as well. Which one loss team has the best chance of making the playoffs? But a ton of MLB World Series Game 6 tonight. Can the Astros close it out? Ryan Hickey, Mark Everkelly, Austin Tottenham with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. One of these nights. Eagles. One of these crazy old nights. We're gonna find out pretty mama. We are back the morning boys here. Sorry about that. Uh, your boy here hit the wrong wrong button on the power strip and took down the whole network single handedly. So that's a first in the Worldwide Sports <laughs> Radio Network history. Uh, but we are back. Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett Kelly, Austin Tidal, I'm with you to 11 every Tuesday and Friday morning, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Uh, catch us anywhere. You know, we are on WorldWideSportsRadio.com. We are on YouTube. We are on Twitter at WWSRN underscore radio. That's where you can watch a live feed through Periscope. Um, if you want to listen to us, we also are on TuneIn as well. So a lot of streaming places digitally on your computer, apps that you can go and watch us through every Tuesday and Friday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. you want to give us a call, one eight seven seven nine zero nine 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 seven seven. Ryan, I can make you feel better. I can make you feel What's better. that, Mark? I, 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 at my time at ESPN, I told you guys there was a, a moment where I almost entirely brought the whole network down. Yes, Digger. Yeah. It's, it's scooted a, a yeah. lot of uh, screaming by Digger Phelps yeah, towards yeah. one Mark Everett Kelly over uh, here. I, we, 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 got, we got a couple, a couple minutes. I, I just want to go for it. I want to hear a story. So it was my, my first year there. 
And I was hired in October 1999 to be a college basketball researcher. And uh, you know, I, I knew college, obviously I knew college basketball, but not as well as I know pro sports. Okay, uh, so I uh, did all my homework. Uh, you know, there, there was a bunch of things. There were only three of us, and uh, the guy who I replaced was there for a morning, because initially when I when I interviewed, I did not get the job, and then I got hired by the AP, and I was going to work for the AP, and then ESPN called me back, and the guy that they hired over me quit three hours into their shift. Three hours. Yeah, he he. Uh, he went there in the morning, and then he went out for lunch, and he never came back. So, uh, and in comes Mark, okay? And at, when you're a college basketball researcher, there's a whole bunch of things that you have responsible. You're responsible for the daily schedule. You're responsible for getting out the notes for uh, the games that night, uh, which is basically going through the websites, printing out the, uh, the team notes, okay? Um, if you have uh, a studio show that night, you're responsible for a meeting with the producer, going over everything that's in the rundown, all right? So there's a bunch of different responsibilities you have. And then it comes championship weeks, which is just a, a right. total crap storm. I mean, you're just busy for, you know, 100 hours. So uh, college basketball Saturday uh, is tough enough. Uh, but starting in January, ABC would do the games on Saturday. We'd have the ABC Saturday game. And it would uh, usually be a doubleheader. Uh, you would have the 1 o'clock game and then the 3.30 game. And studio wraps then, which you know, wraps means that they have essentially a halftime show. So when you have college basketball going on on a Saturday and you have basically there's, what, 300 and something teams in Division One, yep. and maybe 120 of them uh, have to, you know, are in big conferences that matter in January and that are fighting for a position in the NCAA tournament, uh, doing that with help is hard enough. Now, the normal guy who was a college basketball researcher back then for uh, an ABC Saturday was Chris Felica. Now, okay. For those of you who know uh, College Game Day, Chris Felica is the College Game Day researcher, uh, the bear, who uh, basically uh, is one of the strongest uh, sports minds in the, in the world. I mean, this guy's brilliant, okay? Yep, yep, yep. And uh, everyone now knows how brilliant he is, and he gives... Herb Street, Chris Fowler, when he was there. I mean, he writes so many of the, the things that are involved in the show. And he knows college football inside and out. He knows college basketball the same way. He knows horse racing. And so he was the guy that was entrusted to that because he had done that. He had been there, I think, for five years at that point. This was 99. I think he started in, like, 95. Yep. Okay. Um, so that's what normally does. He couldn't do it because he had a wedding. So they said, okay, well, who else is going to do it? And because I, I guess I was the one who had established himself as the, the one that could probably be the best of the three that, that were hired. I had two other guys that were hired with me. They give it to me. And the producer, Rob Lemley, who does, uh, he did the Monday night basketball games on ESPN, comes down. And, you know, Lemley's a guy from UConn, so UConn was good then. And, you know, he's, Lemley's a character in himself. But he says, All right, you're going to do uh, ABC Saturday, you know, just want to let you know. This was on Friday. All right, so I'm like... Uh, okay. Now, at that point, I had been like, one thing I didn't like to, to, to be is put in a position where you, you cannot succeed. And this yep. was a position that I just had no chance of succeeding. Uh, the guys that were in the studio with me were, was the late, great John Saunders, who I love, um, and Digger Phelps. Uh, and Digger, I, I, I grew to love Digger. But uh, when I first started, D Digger was a guy that you, you need to know how to, I wouldn't say he was a diva, but you needed to know how to give him what he needed. 
because Digger's going to ask you a million questions, but uh, if you know ahead of time what he's looking for, which is uh, you need to get him his boxes, his halftime box and his final box. You need to get him the AP wire story. These are things that you, he doesn't even need to ask for. You should just already have that. I, I didn't know that at the time. So uh, first thing is you have to worry about is getting all the game notes. He got all the game notes. Then you have to look at the rundown, and there's like 45 games. So then you have to have cards for each game. And then on the card is, you know, notes about each team. And then the third thing is when you're dealing with John Saunders, John Saunders do- didn't take the shot sheet. Now, a shot sheet are highlights from the game. So a PA comes in and he hands the anchor. Uh, like most people think if they're watching from home and they're watching SportsCenter that the anchor knows what he's watching. He doesn't. The anchor gets a sheet that details what the highlight says on it. So if you see the Eagles and the Jets, and, and it explains what highlights he's going to see and who's involved. They don't just do that from looking at the screen. So John Saunders is the only guy I ever worked with that, that would just want the researcher to put the highlight sheet, the shot sheet, in order with the card. So if you're looking at a rundown, you're going through the A's, which is the first segment, and you have, okay, we're going to do Duke, North Carolina, we're going to do Maryland, um, North Carolina State, and they, you know, going score panel at score panel, then, you, okay, we're, we're, we're going to show a highlight here, and then you have to organize the order. So organizing 45 cards could be hard enough, and then putting in a shot sheet with that in between it just adds more to it, and that's usually not something a researcher had to do. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, the studio we're in, which is Studio C, which is out in the barn in ESPN, was like about as big as the bathroom. I mean, it's so small, and it's freezing. And Digger had friends there. So the friends are staying in the area I'm in, and because there's not much room, I'm putting stuff on the ground. I'm putting the, you know, the things that kind of to try and organize in there, stepping on the sheets, they're, you know, ripping the... So it's a, that's a mess themselves. And then as I'm trying to organize the games and write down the, the stats to give to, to Saunders, you know, because the first segment is, and you've got to have stuff written on a card because that's what Saunders are going to go by. So you've got to have that taken care of. So I'm trying to put that together, and then I have Digger, you know, what's uh, Eduardo Nahara play for Oklahoma at the time? What, what's he doing? What's this guy doing? And you have to stop and, and take a moment to look and tell him something. Otherwise, he's going to get ticked. But that's not really your first concern. The first concern is we're going, to, we're going live in about a minute and a half, and I've got to run out there and give John Saunders everything in order. And then you have the producer yelling in your ear about, okay, we're, we're going to change this, and we're going to show a graphic here. Mark, you need to build this graphic. So then you've got to go into the system and build the graphic. I was so overwhelmed. It was, it was ridiculous. So what happened was the show was just a mess, absolute mess. I didn't do anything really right. I, the only thing I managed to do right was get the guys, was get Saunders his cards. I, I didn't help Digger at all. He was so angry at me. Uh, and you could see the steam kind of rising off his head as the show went on. So after the show ended, just like I'm, I'm so, like, overwhelmed. And at this point, I'm so like, dejected. So after the show ends, so... I go home. Then the next day I come back, and Digger's doing the Monday night raps. Uh, this is two days later because we, we had off Sunday. So we come in Monday. Digger's doing the Monday night raps with Brian Kenny. Yep. And um, he calls me over. before. Uh, as soon as I get down to the studio, he calls me over, and he goes, Mark, come here. And so I go, and I stand, and he goes, no, 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 right here. And I had to stand right in front of him. And he proceeded to rip me apart like I've never been ripped apart in my life. Like, you know. You, you, are, you have no idea what you're doing. I can't believe that they would make such a hire. You know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. You know, you, I was so embarrassed uh, by the position you put me in. Like, 
just ripped me to shreds. And I'm feeling like this big. Okay, and now I still have to go on and do the, the show that we're doing, which yep. is, is like nothing compared to a Saturday. But, you know, big Monday was, you know, you had the ACC matchups, the Big East matchups. So you still got to, you know, be mentally ready. And so I'm, then I kind of, you know, walk back to my little research part of the, uh, the studio and I'm writing down notes. And then Digger gets up to go to the bathroom. And so as soon as he leaves, Brian Kenny, he looks at me, he goes, you know he's right. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that, that, thanks, Brian. I, I, I appreciate that. I've just been totally ripped to shreds here. And, um, but that, that, that's my part. And, like, I, I was so embarrassed. And then my boss called me, the guy who hired me called me in, and he said, what, what the heck happened? And I said, you got to understand the position you put me in. Like, I never want you to do that to me again. Because I, I had no way. Like, I, I cannot be put in a position where I, I don't know how – to do what I'm supposed to do and what's expected of me. You can't just throw, uh, like, you can't just throw a five-year-old and give him an SAT test and say, get a 700, right. get at least a 700. Right. So that, that's kind of the position I was put in. So at, at least you didn't hit the power cord. I'll yeah. say that. At least you didn't well, tear down ESPN, yeah. unplug the plug. Right. And, well, you know. but, but at least then, so. at least then that was understood, and then they kind of redid everything. And by the end of the year, make a long story short, by the end of the year, Diggle loved me. Because Good. Because I had proven myself. And then I was the guy who was asking for when he would go out and do things. Good, good, good. If you want to right. give us a call, one 909 Let's go to the phones. Mike in New Jersey. Mike, you're on with the morning, boys. What's going on? Hey, guys. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. What's yeah, going on, Mike? So, How are you? Sorry, Mike, if I uh, took uh, too long with that. Go, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, so I don't think that the Nationals intentionally did this, but I wanted to get your opinion on how it happens to have possibly a Strasburg, Scherzer falling in game six six and seven i mean that's kind of the way you wanted it to be mm-hmm. so would you say that scherzer getting scratched in game five could possibly could possibly be a blessing in disguise for the nationals it's interesting mike because again we with, with his neck spasms we don't even know if he'll be healthy to pitch tomorrow night in game seven like we are he did get a cortisone shot so we are assuming he'd be fine but we don't know even if he does pitch his limitations um and if you know, if he has restricted movement in his shoulder and that, you know, coming from the spasms, obviously he won't be as effective as he is mm-hmm. and could limit the Nationals, you know, in Game 7 if they get there. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, say it's a blessing because I think if you're the Nationals, you'd rather have Scherzer at home Game 5 to stop the bleeding instead of going back to Houston down 3-2. Again, like you said, it works out that you have your two best pitchers pitching the two biggest games of your season, but I wouldn't say that that's how the Nationals drew it up because you have a chance – at home to go up 3-2 in front of your home fans, the final home game of the season, to take a commanding lead and at least, you know, again, have your guy, Steven Strasburg, with a chance, if Scherzer pitches game five and pitches well, to close it out in game six and win the World Series. See, I, I would say it, it helps you here. Um, like, uh, I remember when the, the Yankees played the Mariners in 1995, Randy Johnson went in game, in game three against the Yankees after the Yankees won the first two games. And it was like assumed that Randy Johnson was going to win that game. So you're not going to throw your best pitcher against Randy Johnson. So you have Garrett Cole going in Game 5. Not that you assume that they're going to win Game 5. But what it actually sets up is that instead of Scherzer kind of, uh, you know, being a, you know, ace against ace and there being no kind of advantage for the Nationals, if he goes Game 7 now with the Strasburg Game 6 and now him in Game 7 against, uh, you know, someone that uh, – who's um, – the guy, uh, Granky, okay? If he goes against Granky, that there is a clear advantage for the Nationals. So you create a game seven where you have your best pitcher on the mound. So I could see your point to what you're saying where 
if you know maybe game five, no matter how you kind of eliminating Strasburg from the equation for a game seven, but now you have your best pitcher in the game that's going to decide the World Series, along with having Strasburg in game six. So I think you're right. That could set it up to where it gives them a bigger advantage than they would have had in game five. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the call, Mike. Again, you want to give us a call, one 877 So let's, let's hit on that, Mark. Speaking of the World Series, so game six is tonight. Justin Verlander, Steven Strasburg. You mentioned Justin Verlander, 0-5 in World Series games. You said the most, I believe, appearances yeah. well, without a win? Well, the most starts uh, for a guy. No one else has made five starts. or so you've made six starts, but no one else has made that most without a win and has lost five of them. Interesting, because now you, know, you have the Cy Young uh, co-leader with his teammate Garrett Cole. Both had rough starts in Game 1 and Game 2 against the Nationals. Both took the loss, which is just staggering when you think of that combo. I don't know off the top of my head, but I know at least the last loss um, before Game 1 of the World Series for Cole was May 22nd. I have to look. I don't believe, yep. I don't see a situation where Verlander and Cole would lose back-to-back games and have the decision being a loss for both of them. So the Nationals did something almost impossible, it seems like. But now, like I said, they win all three games in Washington. Now have a chance to close it out in Game 6. When we last talked on Friday, the Nationals were up 2-0. They, they played great. Like, they absolutely played great. All the bats were hitting. They got contributions 1-9. through nine. They're playing great defense. And the Astros, is funny, we had Mark Simon on last Tuesday, I believe. He wrote a great article about the Astros and their defensive run saved. Well, especially in Game 2, we saw the Astros booting the ball. Alex Bregman on a tough inning. It just led to an explosion in the eventual 12-1 victory um, for the Nationals in Game 2. So now that it's flipped and then uh, the Astros win three straight, would you say this is more impressive by Houston? They kind of finally woke up. This is the team we expected, um, won the most games in the regular season. Or would you say it's on the Nationals at home up 2-0? It's more on them choking it away, would you say, and not getting it done, at least winning one game at home to take the series back to Houston up 3-2? Yeah, well, choking away, I think, generally, I think, falls in line when you have a lead or when you blow something that's obvious. I think that Houston is really good, kind of like with the Yankees in 96. The Yankees kind of woke up, won three games in Atlanta, and the Astros did the same thing. I mean, what, what, one of the guys, the guy I told you, what went for 22, Alvarez, was it Alvarez? Jordan uh, Alvarez, yeah. yep. Uh, and the LCS, he got game five, started off with an absolute bullet on a great pitch by Joe Ross, but it was an outside fastball that was hard to hit, and the ball got out of there in like a second and a half. That's the type of thing that they needed, the Astros, once these guys started waking up, that this was going to make a difference for them in the series. And they did. And you saw the way that they dominated. Game three was close, and then in games four and five, uh, they pretty much won running away. So you have now you have Strasburg going in game six, okay? Strasburg, his last six starts in the postseason, they've won all six of them. He's 5-0 and oh, with an ERA of 1.54, and he's been... Maybe the, the guy I thought was the best postseason pitcher I saw was Rivera. Okay. Now, Rivera did blow, obviously, you know, you think he, losing game seven against Arizona. Yep. He blew a couple saves against the Red Sox in, in the 2004 ALCS where yep. they blew a 3 nothing lead. So that kind of maybe put a little dent in that. But up until that point, he was absolutely lights out when the Yankees won 96, 96 as his setup guy, yep. 98, 99, and 2000. Rivera was a guy that would most of the time go two innings and end the game for you. So Strasburg is kind of like that, where he's been so great in a postseason. He's given you that type of aura that when he starts or when he's in a game, um, like Bumgartner did with the Giants a couple years ago, 
that you feel really good that he's going to come in and get the job done. So I could see him doing the job tonight against the guy Verlander, who has shown at times that he'll have a, a, a weak inning, and that weak inning will be enough to lose the game. You're right. I mean, game two, you look, I mean, it was 2-2. Kurt Suzuki hits a solo home run to get the inning going in that eventual explosion where, they, again, the Nats poured on um, in their 12-1 win. Like I say, I'll start with just a Kurt Suzuki home run. Verlander was cruising for the most part. But like I said, Steven Strasburg has been absolutely terrific. He was on the mound in game five um, against Los Angeles when they won that game to close out the NLDS. He's been just been gutty, too. You know, it's like when you see Garrett Cole out there, he's cruising. He's just dominant. But Strasburg has gotten into trouble, but he's been gutty enough to bear down, get out of jams, get, you know, key outs when runners are in scoring position. And he hasn't folded. You know, he's, he's bended, but he hasn't broken, and that's been huge for the Nationals so far. Like I said, they, that's why they've been so successful with him when he's on the mound in the last few starts that he's made. But you know what's interesting, too? Look, and I'm with you. I think it's more on, on the Astros waking up and being the team that we thought they could be because they kind of slept walk. Even through the postseason, they went to five games to the Rays when you think that they are talent-wise, way better than Tampa Bay. They go to six games against the Yankees um, and really, again, struggle in that series with the bats. Now they finally explode. And look on the other side what the pitching is doing of the Astros. The Nationals game one and two combined for 17 runs on 23 hits. Mm-hmm. The last three games, games three through five, they scored a total of three runs, 17 hits. So they just have not been able to get it done. They've had runners on in scoring position. They have not been able to get them in. And you see partly the Astros now making better pitches, having their pitchers come up big. But also, too, some of the Nationals, they have not had the chances, or they had the chances, excuse me, they've not come through. And their bats have really been the biggest letdown, at least in those first two games. It was impressive. One through nine, everyone's con- uh, contributing, getting huge hits. Like I said, you have Kurt Suzuki had the eventual go-ahead home run in game two um, of that win. But now you don't see that at all. Really, outside of Juan Soto and Anthony Rendon, the rest of the lineup has, has gone dormant, and it's hurt them so bad. And I just don't know if all of a sudden they can wake up back in Houston in game six with their backs against the wall. Like you said with Justin Verlander, 0-5, uh, six starts, most starts without a win in the World Series. I think he's due because when you have a pitcher that has been that dominant, that good, to me it, it does even out after a while. And, again, maybe he has almost a little bit of Kershaw syndrome where he's so dominant the regular season. And for whatever reason, at least in Verlander's case, the World Series, but Kershaw's case, the entire postseason, he just can't put it together and be the same pitcher. I think Justin Verlander, well, again, he hasn't been – ugly. You know, it's not like he's struggled or is getting rocked. I think it's just more hasn't made a pitch or two that's come back to bite him. I think with the Astros hitting the way they are now, getting all guys one through nine, Carlos Gray is heating up, George Springer's heating up, Alex Bregman now is hitting some big hits. I think between the offense really coming to life these last three games and the Astros pitching, especially their bullpen, doing a great job of limiting these Nationals bats, I think the Astros get it done tonight and are holding up that World Series trophy. Um, I think it's going to go seven. I, I think that the Nationals are going to find a way to get to Verlander, uh, just again, just for that one inning. Right. And Strasburg's been that good. And the Nationals now know that there's no tomorrow. So I think when you're in that position, you just throw out whatever you have. There's going to be no going to a guy that can't get it done anymore for the Nationals. Everybody they bring in is going to be a guy they know that their entire season is on the line. Yeah, a big reason why the Nationals struggled so poorly at home, they scored one, one run in each of the three games. Soto uh, was over, his birthday was Friday. Then he goes 0 for 6, excuse me, 0 for 7 in games 3 and 4. And then he kind of had a little revival. He had a home run. He got the only RBI in, in, in game 5. I, I know at the first at bat, he ripped a double down the right field line. So if, if he hits like he does in the first two games, which, you know, game 1, he kind of 
after striking out in his first at bat, you know, kind of got the national starter for the series. I believe he had three hits in, in game one, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, all big hits. As yeah, well. game two he had three hits. Yeah, oh, game, game two. Excuse yep. Me. Uh, no, excuse me. Yeah, game one. You're right. He had he had three hits. Uh, he had a uh, home run, three RBIs, and in game two he scored three runs. So he scored, you know, or excuse me, he scored two two runs. I'm, I'm looking. So he scored two runs in game two. He scored one run in game one. So he's a guy that got on base and got everything started. Like Rendon, who got a big double off of Verlander in game two to start, uh, start them that game. These guys, when they come through, they give the, the rest of the guy, uh, guys in the lineup confidence. And when they struggle, I think the rest of the guys in the lineup say, wait a minute, if these guys aren't coming through... Um, you know, I got to come up and do something. It yep. puts a little bit more pressure on them. So Verlander is a guy that he's been so dominant in his games that he's on. And even when he's off, it's only that shit set of pitches like that gives him a regular, who give up a home run. I mean, he gave up so many home runs during a regular season uh, because his fastball. Like when you, have, when you operate off of a high fastball, What's getting the batters to miss is it's coming up at, at level, and then it's going to a place where they can't catch up to it. Yep. So not all the time does that ball get there as fast, and the rise that it has onto it, sometimes it'll put it right in position for a, a batter who can you know, hit the ball. Right, turn on one and send it out. Yeah. Especially with how hard he's throwing. You know, it's not that hard to Right, but most of the pitchers the do the work for you, right. so they're providing that power for you. So I think that's where he gets into his trouble. Um, but when... He is hitting those spots, you know, like you saw Cole in game five, where I think it was uh, in one of the spots, he walked a batter on a pitch that was a curveball that it looked like it was a strike and was a check swing and they called it a ball. And then the next batter comes up and Cole hits the outside corner with a fastball that kind of swung right back into the strike zone. It's almost looked like the same kind of location but because of a curveball was breaking the other way as opposed to a fastball that was cutting in. And so um, I think it was Kendrick wound up getting called out on strike three, and that ended the rally. And the Nationals yep. were just like, how could you call a ball on one and a strike on the other? Uh, that's just a positioning from a pitcher where the ball winds up in, in, in a strength category is, is what's going to deci- decide often a game for you. And I think if Verlander doesn't hit all his spots – that's going to be something that the Nationals could take advantage of better, uh, better than they would off a guy like Cole. Right. And that's what gets me concerned when you just said, I'm totally in agreement with you with the Nationals feeding off each other. And when they see guys like Rendon and Soto hitting, that kind of gives them confidence and gives them energy to go out. And like you said, games one and two, up and down the lineup, everyone's contributing, getting some big hits and driving some runs. Where now you look games three through five, right, they're struggling. Especially Soto's come up in a few big spots with guys and running, uh, with runners in scoring position not coming through. I think it is a trickle-down effect. And you've seen the dugout. You know, I, I do love these celebrations they do for home runs. Everyone is feeding off each other. But like you say, it does have a negative impact when guys aren't getting it done. They're in a slump. And like I said, three runs in three games is really not a, uh, a strategy you want that's conducive to winning. And I just have, a t- to me, a, a tough time, at least tonight, against a great pitcher, like you said, who, who has one or two pitches a game that you can hit out, turn around, and, and make him pay for. I just, to me, don't know right now what the slump the Nats' bats have been, um, if they're able to put those out. You know, that's part of it. Just when you're mm-hmm. facing so much good pitching in the playoffs, especially now in the World Series, that's all it's about, right? All yep. is one pitch it takes to turn the entire game around. That's Maybe right. that's all you'll get. And 
I just right now at least don't trust the Nats yep. to convert on those opportunities to get it done at least tonight. And another guy who, who matters a lot in their lineup is Adam Eaton. I mean, you saw when he got on base in games one and two uh, that the Nats had, were in better positions. Uh, last two games, Eaton 0 for 7. Uh, Trey Turner is another guy top of the line. When he gets on base, you set up those guys. Uh, you set up Soto and Rendon. Right, and you see, look, too, I think it was game two when Verlander pitched. I think Trey Turner got in the first inning. Verlander paid him a lot of attention. He mm-hmm. was very distracted, yep. thrown over, and you saw the Nationals scored two quick runs in game two. Yep. I think partly is, like you said, Trey Turner having that speed on the base pass. Now pitchers have, you know, are distracted from the plate, leave pitches up, leave pitches out of the plate. And, again, the Nationals, at least in game two, have converted. So we'll see if they can come through. Um, extend their season game six again tonight. Steven Strasburg, Justin Verlander, Astros up three games to the road team has won every single game in this series so far. Um, rarity, especially in baseball that we see, but again, one of those just weird quirks. It's been a weird world, weird world series. And we'll see if that will continue tonight or when we're back on Friday. Talk, well, we will be back on Friday talking about the champion, but we'll see at least if the Astros can put game, game six away tonight or the nationals can extend game seven to tomorrow night. When we come back, some college football, another upset over the weekend. Oklahoma now falls victim, the third straight week where a team ranked in the top ten falls to an unranked team. So now that leaves us with a few one-loss teams, right? We have you have Florida, you have Oregon, Georgia, Utah, Oklahoma. Those five teams, which one-loss team right now has the best chance to make the playoff? We will tell you when we come back. Ryan Hickey, Mark Everkelly, Austin Tidebaum, the Morning Boys are rolling with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. The Sultans are swing. Favorite song. You get a shiver in the dark. It is the morning, boys, on this Tuesday morning. Thanks so, t- uh, so much for tuning in wherever you are. Ryan Hickey, Mark Everkelly, Austin Tidebaum with you till 11 a.m. in the East. Thanks so much for listening. We are on YouTube. We are on Periscope. We are on Twitter. If you want to follow our Twitter at WWSRN underscore radio, that will allow you to watch or listen to the stream every Tuesday and Friday when we are on all, as well as catch a lot of the other great shows and content that are published throughout the week and the weekend. Personal Twitter handle at Ryan underscore Hickey and the number three. Mark at CK Magic Sports. A lot of good info from him on there. So definitely suggest following Mark on Twitter. You want to give us a call? 1 877 909 That's 1-877-909-9977. We thank Mike in New Jersey for giving us a call a little bit earlier talking about Max Scherzer possibly pitching game seven um, and if that was a blessing or a curse for the Nationals in the World Series. But Mark, College football, as we start the final hour, another upset three weeks in a row now. And now, for the first month and a half, college football, we, you know, as we're used to, a ton of upsets everywhere, just a lot of chaos. We really haven't had that. I think it was the first time, I forget in how many years, I'll be honest, but when the top six in the AP remained the top six through the first month, no upsets. But now, the last three weeks, Georgia losing at home to South Carolina, mm-hmm. Wisconsin losing on the road to Illinois, and now Oklahoma on the road, falling to Kansas State 48-41. to Making that, again, three straight weeks now. An undefeated has fallen victim. So now you look at the playoff race. Penn State moves up to slot number four, um, to number five, excuse me. LSU now jumps out. We'll start with that. LSU is now number one in the country in the AP poll. The cultural playoff poll, the poll that actually does matter, will come out starting a week from today. And that obviously is the poll that will determine the four playoff teams at the end of the year. The committee interested to see their ranking so far. Do you agree with LSU jumping over Alabama to be the number one team in the country? I don't. 
I, you don't? Okay. No, because I think that, I, look, Alabama was playing with their backup. Right. And Matt they, Jones. Yeah, yep. and it wasn't even close. I mean, it was 48-7, to seven and, and that was a lot closer than, the, than the, the, final, the play really. Right. If you watch the game, it wasn't even that close. Right. I believe it was what? It was a 41-7 at halftime or 41? It was, they put yeah, up a no, number they, before yeah, half was, even, even was there. Yeah, it was, I mean, basically, I think um, Arkansas wound up scoring late in the game to get rid of the shutout. But they did anything they wanted to, Alabama. They totally dominated a team that they should dominate at home. There was no reason for them to lose their number one ranking based on that. If you have plus LSU didn't come out and blow Auburn off the off the face of the earth. I mean, there was a point in that game where Auburn stopped LSU on fourth and two, I believe, at the goal line. And then they get the ball back and they're unable to move it from deep in their own territory. So they have to punt it back to LSU. And then LSU wound up scoring two touchdowns in like a five minute span to break the game open. I believe the third turned a thirteen ten deficit into a twenty four thirteen lead. And that's where the game kind of got away from Auburn. But Auburn was in that position to where if they have a sustained drive right there with the, with the lead after just stopping LSU on fourth down, instead of punting it right back and giving LSU great field position again, that they could essentially win that game. And as it, as it was, they, lost, they only lost by a couple points. So this is a team that is number nine in the nation who has a freshman quarterback who looked overmatched a little bit by Florida. Okay. And there, there's some clear discrepancy. Now, Auburn's got a great defense, all right? And Auburn's a good team. I mean, they're very good. But LSU didn't come out and dominate them. Every game, now, it's against poor competition, but when was the last time you saw Alabama in a regular season game struggle against a team at home that they should beat? You know, they, 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 they haven't really come out and just barely won some of their games. I mean, they wind up losing last year. Uh, in, the, in the national championship game, but all the games that they had to come out and win, except for the national championship game, uh, the, the SEC championship game, they pretty much blew them out. When they played LSU last year at LSU, that game wasn't close. Right. Okay. Um, I think that if you're, in, in this instance, if you're going to lose a number one ranking, you should play, like if they would have won, say, 35 to 20 against Arkansas, and Arkansas moved the ball, and they were in the game, I could see that, where LSU would jump them, even only winning by a couple points. But if you're Alabama and you come out and you totally dominate a team you should dominate with your backup quarterback, that was kind of the reason why everybody now, if two is playing, Alabama doesn't lose that number one ranking. You, know, you realize that. So wh- why on earth would it happen now when Mac Jones played so well I, I just don't think that you should lose that number one ranking after you blow out a team that you should blow out with your backup quarterback. I, I think that if you're in a position where Clemson is, where you're in a weak conference, and you barely hung on to beat North Carolina, that's different. That's what, why they would lose their number one ranking. Then if you beat a team 48-7 to in a game that's not even that close, and the team that jumps you is a team that wins at home against a team that you are, that they are higher ranked than, that already had lost. You see what I'm saying? Like, yes, but this is where I disagree. Okay. Um, you look at LSU now, they won three top ten games this season already. Mm-hmm. 
Right. No one else in the top ten has even won one. Well, Texas was, you know, at the time was a great They were win. number nine. Yeah. Right. Again, that, that's but hurt. But at the time, now, yeah. they were number nine, and that game was on the road. You're right. And they won that game by a touchdown. You're right. They beat Florida at home by two touchdowns. Like I said, they won by three over Auburn at home. To me, I can't penalize, like, win the game. When you were playing a top ten team, to me, style points don't matter as if you win the game. That was a slugfest. That yeah. was each team punched out their mouth. Joe Burrow took some huge hits, but he made plays that he had to at the end. The LSU defense, which has been... Suspect at times, again, Florida had no problem moving the ball for most of the game. They made enough plays to win. You want to fault Auburn for not trying to sustain a drive after getting a goal line stand? I mean, I don't know what to tell you, Mark. That's a tough. When you're backed at your own one-yard line on the road with a freshman QB, mm-hmm. to me there's not much you can do there. You just don't ask for a safety. And punting it back, you know, that's also credit to LSU's defense for making plays. Oh, yeah. and, to them, and that's why you go for it, too, to pin them back. So, to me, it sounds almost like you're punishing LSU – for winning by three at home against a top 10 team. They have had won three top 10 games. Again, anyone else in the top uh, 10 AP can't even say that. They've won one. They've done it three times already. Their resume is second to none. And to me, you have to reward teams for who they play and what their record is. I get it. Alabama has won with style points. Their schedule has been atrocious this far. Absolutely atrocious. I I agree. Their non-conference was garbage. The SEC has been down this year. Mm -hmm. So their their biggest test will be next week against LSU. And, and, and Auburn. Right. Yeah, and, but and, at least up to this date, they have played their best game was or the best team was Texas A&M. Yeah. So to me, right? I don't get yeah. how you can't reward a team who's answered the bell three times against top ten teams, won every single game, have their offense humming the way it is, and say they're not number one because they only won by three at home against Auburn. Well, I mean, we don't know how Alabama – like. Again, they've looked good. Don't get me wrong. They've done what they had to do. They've blown out every single team. Right. That's part of the mark of a good team is – Beating teams you're supposed to beat and beating them handily. Yep. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Alabama. But to me, at this point in the season, when there's enough data points now, eight games to realize who's good, who's not. We're not relying on what we saw last year or the hype of some players that we think what they'll be and the potential. This is real, and this is what we saw so far through the first eight games. They, to me, I test-wise are the best team, and they have the resume to be the best team. So to me, there's absolutely no question. They should absolutely be number one, and I think they're 100% deserving no matter what Alabama did Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Arkansas lost... But they won by seven at home to Portland State. They mm-hmm. lost at home to San, Diego, San Jose State. They stink. Right? They, they shouldn't even be in the SEC, let alone maybe yeah. Power 5 right now with the way they've played. So, again, yeah. I understand it was a backup quarterback. Mm-hmm. I understand they, they just, again, blew the doors off and wasn't close. To me, again, that's not something you should be proud of. Like, that's not saying, oh, they won. They blew out Arkansas. So, it's not that it was a close game. They should stay number one. No, mm-hmm. it's because LSU played the games, mm-hmm. and they've won the games. They've beaten the best teams so far on their schedule. Mm-hmm. They deserve to be number one, hands down. I mean, yeah, I, I, I could see that point. I mean, the only thing I'm saying is that if you're already the number one team and you do what you're supposed to do, it's hard to accept getting dropped. You know, if they would have done something, if Alabama did something to penalize themselves, which was not come out and play like they should play. I could see it, absolutely. If they would have struggled against Tennessee, if they would have, you know, now you know, a lot of people, when they saw Tua get hurt, they figured, okay, like this is the moment where we can maybe do this because Alabama, a lot of their strengths are, you know, with Tua they are so much better than most of the college teams. You know, you saw how they play with Tua at full strength. The only time I ever saw Tua struggle at all was against Clemson and a little bit against Georgia, but he was hurt going into that game. And it's kind of the same situation he has going into this LSU game where he has the same type of surgery except on the other ankle. So it's going to be a huge test for him. Um, I certainly think LSU is deserving. I certainly think they are 
one of the two best teams in the country. I certainly see your point as far as them beating three top ten teams when they, when they played them. Um, I just think it's hard to penalize a number one team that does what they're supposed to do and, you know, dominates, not just wins, but dominates. And then you have um, LSU coming out at home and winning. You know, like, like I said, yeah, for Auburn, when you're backed up after making a key fourth down spot, with it, that is a tough spot. You know, but my, my only point was if that would have, if they were, were able to sustain a drive where they give the ball back to LSU, where LSU now has to drive, you know, from deep in their territory, that's where that game really could have been won and lost for LSU. So there were, like, real key moments in that game where LSU it looked like they had something to worry about. You know, but ultimately they made the place to win, which is what they've done all season. They weren't the, you know, the, the incredible offense that we've seen throughout the other games. Even against Florida, they blew the doors off them and they had no problem moving the ball. You saw for the first time this year that they could be, I don't want to say stopped, but that they weren't as dominant offensively as they have been against the defense that's pretty good. Now, Alabama's defense is not as good as Auburn's. Right. I think they're getting better. You can see that they're clearly more comfortable now than when they started the season. And going into this game here, you have two straight weeks in the SEC that's going to decide the SEC championship game. You have the world's largest cocktail party this, this Saturday, which yep. I, I don't know how you feel about that. The game being in Jacksonville, I just think that's – I mean, I know they do it every year. They just signed an agreement now to do it through 2023. But I think for Georgia and Florida fans, it's nice that there's no, like, home field advantage for, like, a matchup. But, I, like, for a home team, like, you want that. If you're Florida, you want, okay, I want, I want Georgia coming into my building now. And if you're Georgia, the same thing. Like that, giving up that home game against a rival that basically, let's, let, let's break it down. The SEC East is only going to be won by Florida and Georgia every year, yep. it seems like. This has been the case just about, I think Missouri won a couple years, South Carolina won in 2010. But other than that, it's been Georgia and Florida every year since, since in the millennium. Okay? So how... I, I, I think that it's, if I'm a fan of either team, I would want the home game rather than a neutral side game. I get it, and I'm, especially to me in college football, I'm 100% with you. The atmosphere alone, you should just eliminate neutral side games altogether. Now, this is, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit. I think there's two exceptions. The uh, Red River rivalry with Oklahoma and Texas, I love it yeah. at the Cotton Bowl because I love the split 50-50 yeah. down the middle. It's a great environment yeah. right there in the middle of the Texas State Fair. Mm-hmm. And I actually do love the world's largest cocktail party out in Jacksonville because it is like basically directly in between the two schools. Right. And it's almost the same thing where it's like half the fans are Florida, half are Georgia. Right. I, to me, I kind of like that yeah. when it's, when it's those neutral site games that are in the, like it, it makes sense geographically. It's not like one of these random beginning of the year games where you have like Auburn and Dallas taking on Oregon. Yeah. And it's just like, right. just, they're so far away from both schools. I like the fact that it's when you have a, a neutral side game in, in the middle, in between two schools that sell out every game, have a great environment, you know, 50% fans of each side. Yep. To me, I like it, but I'm with you. Like, out, outside of those two games, eliminate neutral side games because, right, college football is supposed to be built on the atmosphere mm-hmm. in the home team stadium. That's what it's, to me, separates it from the NFL. And, right, just it should be as many home games as possible. But I think, you, yeah, when you have rivalries like that, like imagine Alabama and Auburn playing at Birmingham. Every right. Year. Like, you know, I, I mean, get it. Right. It would lose its luster. Yeah, I mean, maybe because it'll be great. Right. It'll be a great rivalry. I, I think it'd, it'd be something where you could set up, oh, hey, 50 50 on each side. But I think it would, you know, watching Auburn beat them on the missed field goal 
watching Auburn come back from 24 nothing at Alabama in 2010. Yep. A year they won a national championship. Like, those things at Alabama. Yep. You know, um, those things are special, I think, to the fans that represent each team. I think when you, you know, especially a rivalry, an in-state rivalry, like, you know, Alabama and Auburn, they, they, they hate each other. Right. You know? um, Clemson and South Carolina, they hate each other, even though that's not even a rivalry anymore. It's kind of like the Jets-Patriots. Yeah. You know, just show up and get, get their butt beaten. Um, but... I, I think taking it away from the home stadium might take a little bit away from the fans, but that's fair, what I'm saying. Fair. Um, in, in looking at the, the the polls, okay, and how the uh, AP poll was was decided, Alabama got 21 first place votes, more than uh, Ohio State and LSU got. Only got 17, and they did not. You know, they weren't ranked number one. That was the first time that that's happened since like the late 70s, where uh, a number one team received the most first place votes and did not get a first-place ranking because there's, you know, the, the, a number of coaches or a, a number of guys vote in the AP poll, and you get a certain amount of points. Okay, say if uh, 50 writers are ranking them and 21 of them have um, Alabama first, you get more points for a number one rank. You right, know, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Okay. The point um, system is tiered yeah. right based, based on where you, you slot them. Yep. So basically is uh, that the, the top three teams, Alabama – LSU and Ohio State are only separated by like six points. It's the closest since the late seventies. Right, well, I think yeah, it's absolutely how it should be. Like to me, yeah, those exactly. two teams, right? The only thing separating them is, to me at least, is the resume of LSU. To me, three top ten wins is deserving of number one. And again, what we're arguing right now, mm-hmm. unfortunately, is meaningless for two reasons. One, they play next week, yep. so that's you know, yeah, two weeks. yeah. you yeah. know, so it's like you know, mm-hmm. it's like we, yep. we'll we'll know which team is better when we see them on the field. Yep. And two, the AP poll will be irrelevant also starting next yep. week when the uh, cultural playoff poll comes out. So we're interested to see both teams on a bye this week if the cultural playoff committee agrees with the AP poll and LSU mm-hmm. being number one, really you know, thinking that resume does matter, or is it right? I said eye test style points, Alabama's ran. They haven't played anyone, but they've looked good in the games they have won. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to see. Um, so obviously that game is next week, but this week alone, mm-hmm. and talking about you know, the, the playoff now, like we mentioned going into the break, Florida, mm-hmm. Oregon, mm-hmm. Georgia, Utah, Oklahoma, all teams in the top 10 with one loss. Now, those, you know, Oklahoma, Georgia, the last two teams in the last few weeks here to take that L. Mm-hmm. Um, which team of those five do you think has the best chance with one loss, now assuming they have to run the table, yeah. of making the playoff? Well, look, I, I think the team that has the best maybe argument maybe is Oregon because they, they lost the non-conference game and they've been unbeatable in their conference schedule. And they've looked pretty good. Okay. Oklahoma, you can't lose to Kansas State. You can't. I mean, they had everything they, they, had everything they wanted, and they blew it. Ba- Baylor, too. Yeah, Baylor to worry about. Baylor's undefeated. Um, SMU, I believe, is undefeated, too, right? Yes, but they're yeah. in the American Athletic oh, okay. Conference. So. About them. Yeah, you know, even though they're in, in Texas, it's, yeah, you know, right. with the way the conferences are these days. I, I get so confused now with the Big 12. You figure a team in, the, in Texas that's that good is in the Big 12, but they're not. But Baylor is in the Big 12. Uh, and they play – they don't play – uh, Oklahoma, or they, they would play them in a, in a conference championship game, correct? Who's this? Baylor. Well, they would, right. Well, the, the Big 12, there's no conference. There's only 10 teams, so they, they take oh, the top right. two. So you're right. If okay. Baylor and Oklahoma right now, I mean, especially with Texas losing, Baylor and Oklahoma are at the top, at least mm-hmm. in the Big 12. So, right, depending on, you know, if, especially Oklahoma wins and beats Baylor, they both have one loss. They'll probably have a rematch again in the Big 12 title game. Well, if Baylor beats them during the regular season and then they beat them again, and that the conference championship game. Baylor puts themselves in pretty good position, yeah, too. Yeah, but they'll um, be undefeated yeah, right, at that right. point. Okay, so these one-loss teams. So, um, 
Oklahoma because uh, let, let, let's just put them at like, kind of at the bottom. Them and Georgia kind of in the same spot. Georgia loses to a South Carolina team at the time. We didn't realize how bad of a loss that was. South Carolina last two weeks losing to Florida at home and losing to Tennessee. I mean, you can't lose to Tennessee. I, I'm with you. Okay. And they've also lost to Missouri. Okay. The only, t- the only other team they've beaten in the SEC is Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And they also lost to North Carolina in a season opening game where they blew a second half lead. So, um, so let's just put Georgia and, and, you know, Georgia coming out and beating Kentucky where they don't pass the ball. You know, listening to the SEC shorts, you know, like going back to like the 1920s, like the, them figuring out that you can still <laughs> throw the ball and them choosing not to. Okay. So Georgia really showed that, they're, that they have a, a real weakness in losing that game. Yes. Same, yep. same thing with Oklahoma. Oklahoma looked great. And you did not imagine them, just like you did not imagine Wisconsin losing to Illinois. Right. You did not imagine them losing to Kansas State. Now, Kansas State can score, but you don't expect them to lose Oklahoma. So let's put them there. All right. Now, Florida, I think Florida showed that losing to LSU on the road is nothing to be ashamed of. So they can still, if they beat Georgia, they are going to be in great position. Now, unfortunately for them, they still have to win the SEC championship game against one of the two best teams in the nation. So if they do that, they're going to have the best resume. That's where I think it gets interesting because, like you said, to me, it's not like when you look at the team with the best chance of one loss, to me it comes down to a few different factors. Resume and who you play in the future and can they, like, also like looking at the team itself, can they win? Right. When you look at Florida and Georgia, to me, I, I said Georgia for a few reasons. One, they still have a decent resume left. They still play Auburn on the road. So, and they play Auburn before, obviously, Alabama does. So you, you figure, at least if you're a Georgia fan, if Auburn can run the table the rest of the way, at least until that game, they'll have two losses. They'll still be ranked probably in the top 15. Mm-hmm. So that's still a decent win, especially on the road. That's a good resident booster. And then, like you said, play either Alabama or LSU in the SEC title game. Mm-hmm. Boom, there's two pretty good wins for you. Right? Could almost try to wipe away the one loss to South Carolina. When you look at teams like, to me, like Oregon, even Utah and Oklahoma, yeah. their biggest faults, because I think they can, their schedule, to me, doesn't do them any favors in terms of, like you, you hinted at Oklahoma playing Baylor, who's number 12 right now, undefeated. That's Oklahoma's only real chance at a real win the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. And looking with the way Texas has been falling now, having three losses, mm-hmm. that win looks worse and worse. Right. So when it gets to a resume contest now, when, especially when you're going to have Alabama or LSU have one loss, you have to compete against them at least yep. in terms of trying to get into the fourth spot. Yep. You have to not only win out, be able to win out, have the talent to win out as a team, but also you have to have the resume there as well. Like I look at Oregon, right? Their resume, Oregon right now, their best game, if you want to say, or their best outcome, has been a loss to Auburn. Like they don't have a re- currently right now in the AP top twenty-five. They don't have a win against a ranked team. They beat Washington when they were ranked. They've fallen out. So the Pac-12 right now is doing them no favors. And like I said, their only way of getting a decent win is we'll be playing Utah. If Utah wins out, that'll be a top ten match in the Pac-12 title game. But you look at resumes across the board is one win over you know one top twenty-five or one top ten win going to be good enough where the second best resume point on their schedule is a loss to a neutral site Auburn team, which to be fair at that point may have three or four losses. If you want to, you know, depending on how you want to predict Georgia and Alabama coming. So that loss for, for Oregon at least looked good at the beginning, but now with that loss to LSU for Auburn, it just gets worse and worse. And so to me, that has to be part of it. You have to factor in, well, what schedules these teams have left and what resumes do they already build or can build? To me, Georgia and Florida have the best chance because they will play each other, which is a a top 10 win right there. And then not to mention, they will play either, like you said, 
Alabama or LSU in the SEC title game, most likely, which is another great opportunity for two top ten wins on their resume to kind of wipe away the one bad loss that they have. And in Florida's case, their one loss is not even that bad. They lost to LSU on the road. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, they have the best loss of anyone right now in that group. And the final thing, you know, to make this a long-winded point short here is – can they win? So especially in the case of Florida and Georgia, since they have the best chance resume-wise to get in as one loss, I, I believe. Do I think Florida can go to uh, Atlanta and beat either LSU or Alabama with essentially a backup quarterback in Kyle Trask? Now, he's been playing better than Felipe Franks, and I think he, he's a better fit than Franks is in that offense as a quarterback. But to be honest, I do worry that in the big spot against, again, not great defenses, but better defenses than he's played so far, I just I don't believe in Kyle Trask personally enough to help the Florida Gators produce enough offense for them to win. Um, I like their defense a lot, and I think they have some great skill guys um, at running back and receiver. It's just to me, I think Georgia, with Jake Fromm, with their running game, is better equipped and a better offensive line to go into Atlanta, beat Alabama, beat LSU, and again, get themselves into the playoff. So that's, you know, because that, that's tricky. Because again, like you, you look at, you know, Schedule-wise, you would say either Oklahoma, Oklahoma probably would have the best chance um, to run the table, but that's unfortunately not part of it. Because now you've got to look too, looking ahead. Not you know again, we're just talking about one loss season right now, but looking ahead, projecting Penn State and Ohio State right now are currently undefeated. Um, if they meet the second and last week of the year, both undefeated, that's a close game. Either Penn State loses you know by a field goal or Ohio State loses by a field goal. Both of those teams right now, also one will have a great win. And one will have a very tough loss, but probably the best loss of any team with one loss outside of LSU, Alabama. So you have to factor all these things in is the resume, too. Not just can the team win. Can they bounce back? Can they win their conference? But do, when the end of the season comes, are there enough ranked teams on their schedule to win? That's why Clemson, I think, is in huge, huge trouble if they lose any game because their resume by far is the worst of anyone in the top 10. And they might not even have one top 25 win on the season when it comes to an end. Whereas if one loss will definitely knock them out. Um, and even you look at Alabama, too. This is another discussion we can have with LSU having three top ten w- victories already. They can afford to lose to Alabama on the road in a close game and still make the playoff. Where Alabama, you look at their schedule, their best win will be LSU. Or if they lose to LSU, their best win would be Auburn by that point might have three or four losses. Their, their resume is definitely in big question as well. So now you know, you're going to have a lot of competition from these one-loss teams of who has the best resume, who can get, not only just you know, get in, but run the table and, and get the best wins. To me, when I look at everything combined, the resume already, the teams they have to play going forward, and the talent they have on the team, those three factors to me are huge in how you have to evaluate these one-loss teams. I look at Georgia as being having the most talent. I, I do believe in Jake Fromm. He's looked you know, suspect really this season, not really what I was expecting, but I still, to me, think the potential and the talent is there. I like their running game. The receivers are the big question, but I think they have a really good defense to match up with Alabama, with LSU, with Florida this upcoming week. So to me, I think Georgia, to me, checks all the boxes. Their one loss is pretty bad, but they, again, they, have, they play Florida this week where if they win, that's a top 10 win. They beat Alabama or LSU in the SEC title game. That's another top 10 win. Their resume all of a sudden is looking really, really good, and as an SEC champ, they will be in. Whereas you look at other teams like Oklahoma, Utah, Oregon, I just don't see if they win their conference, win out, them having enough top 10 or top 25 victories to make their resume look good and just having the strength of schedule to where you can say that, you know, this team is deserving over a few other one-loss teams out there. Okay, well, I think um, what can make a difference in deciding who is the most uh, attractive one-loss team is point differential. 
Okay. Okay. So if you want to look at point differential between like Oklahoma and Florida, okay, Oklahoma's won their games by an average of 16.3 points per game. Uh, Florida's won by an average of 16.7 points per game. Okay. If we're talking about Alabama and LSU as far as overall, Alabama's won their games by an average of 33.3 points a game. LSU's won by an average of 26.8. Now, obviously, the tougher teams you play, you could see that the games are going to be closer. Right. Okay? Auburn's defense is really good. Florida's defense is really right. good. So it's like, right, LSU right. has won close games. But, granted, those are big games that they've won, mm-hmm. that Alabama can't say they've won. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, in breaking down a resume, say if you have an undefeated team like Penn State compared to an undefeated team like, like Baylor, okay? Um, Penn State wins a lot of, you know, they, if they beat, first of all, if they beat Ohio State, I think a lot of those deserving questions, because they would have to beat Ohio State and then probably Wisconsin's going to win. Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio. it's a, you yeah, know, Minnesota's undefeated. Yeah, Minnesota's undefeated. So okay. they play each other later on, so that will probably be the playing game for the, although, I mean, Wisconsin does have two losses already, actually. Mm-hmm. Right. So Minnesota can lose that game and still get in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, right, they have to. So Penn State still, they, they got to be two, two good teams still, okay? And that'll definitely add to their resume. So even though they're not blowing teams out, they'll, they'll definitely have a resume where they would have beaten Wisconsin. They would have beaten an undefeated in Minnesota if they beat them. Right. Um, Minnesota and Ohio State would yeah. both be wins on the road against uh-huh. two undefeated teams. So you're right. There's a chance to pad the resume, right, and compared to Baylor where game. it's like they are hurt because Oklahoma and, and Baylor right now are the two best teams and everyone else is – it was like the Pac-12 syndrome. Everyone else is beating each other. Right. So which is the Oregon's schedule, biggest problem. Right, exactly. Which is why, I mean, they're number seven right now. Oregon, to me, I just don't see resume-wise they what can't. win they get to, like, to, to get that big bump right. to go up into the Final Four. They can't because the, the Big 12 and the Pac-12 this year do not have uh, a team that's like you have with, or- or- with Alabama and Auburn and LSU, three teams in the top ten up until last week. You know, you don't have a you know, USC where you had where, where they were number one in the country. You don't have, um, you know, Stanford or Cal. or Right, or, I mean, Stanford being teams, down for yeah. them, Washington be like. Right, right, Washington is a team that maybe would, would at one point be a team that could be in the, in right. the conversation. They're not. Okay. Right, which so, hurts Oregon huge. Right. right. Like you said, the resume end of the year. So even if you wind up being undefeated, it's the worst part scenario. See, Clemson has the fact that they are national champs. So they could go undefeated in a weak conference, and they still will be deserving to get their chance to defend their title. Right. They're not, if they're undefeated, like you said, 13-0, they're not being left out of the playoffs. No, there's absolutely no not. There's no way in hell. No. And I, I don't Despite care. Despite having, I mean, there's a chance they might have zero yeah. top 25 yeah. wins. Yeah, and they basically a layup, you know, escorted into the, the college playoff. But you know what? You won the national championship. If you have a weak conference, it's not their fault that Florida State stinks, that Duke stunk this year, you know, that uh, Syracuse couldn't. Right. Play like they normally could. I mean, the only thing that you would maybe look as well, they, they, you know, it's a North Carolina game, but they still won, okay? And you definitely should not be held out of that playoff if you go undefeated. Right, and your okay? worst thing you can say about you is you won by one on the road in North Carolina. Right. You didn't lose. Like you said, you didn't lose. You didn't you're unblemished. Lose. You're in. You no matter lose. what, I don't care what happens, you're in. No, like I could see if they lost that game, yeah. Then right. the oh, conversation's totally different. 100%. Now, if you're Oregon and you have that loss, even though it's to Auburn, but we've seen Auburn is not as good as LSU. They probably, you know, they could, they could beat Alabama at home. I could see, make a better case for them beating Alabama than LSU. Interesting. Only because, they're, look, no matter what with Auburn, they've beaten them like three times in the last like six years, okay? Um, there, there's only a handful of teams that have beaten Alabama during the regular season. Yep. You know, Ole Miss has done it, which people like. They Twice in a row, but, which is right. crazy. Okay. Um, Auburn's done it. But, I mean, LSU hasn't beaten them since 2011. And no other SEC team 
beats Alabama during the regular season. So you could say that Auburn, because of the rivalry, and they just hate each other so much, that there is a better chance. You know, we, we've seen two years ago when Alabama looked unbeatable going in there and losing to Auburn. Yep. Okay. Um, anytime they've had to prove themselves against LSU, they have, and they've looked better. So, uh, and I, I think that really is going to show. LSU right now, this is the game that matters the most to them at any point since they've won their national championship uh, or when they were playing Alabama for the national championship in 2011. Like, that was, you know, if you remember those two games, the first game was like a 4-5. Like 9-6, right. Yeah. It was all field goals. But they won that at Alabama, I believe. Yep, you know? yeah, it was on the road, absolutely. And uh, so then the national championship game, Alabama wound up beating them. Uh, but I, I think that this is the time. If you're LSU and you know, like, this is your chance, you, there, there are no questions for you if you win this game. Oh, I'm with Even you. Even if you lose the SEC championship game, I still think they will be in the, uh, the college football playoff. You would have four top ten victories on the resume. Mm-hmm. Like you said, to me, right. I mean, we've never – the only thing we haven't seen is a team lose their last – like, well, I guess we have with Alabama losing the last game to Auburn and still getting in. Right, uh, winning they didn't their, play again. Right. Yeah. We've never seen a, a team lose a conference title and get in. But, again, like you said – if you lose the last game of the year, don't even get to your conference title and still get in, I do believe um, I'm with you that LSU is in. It's right. This is almost a playing game for LSU here, assuming. I mean, again, it is college football, so craziness does happen. But assuming they take care of business, four top ten wins um, is going to be tough for them to get left out upon. Now, do you think they would take if Baylor winds up undefeated? So say we have Baylor undefeated, Clemson undefeated, Penn State undefeated. Um, do you think that if we have that, that they will keep out a, an undefeated team in one of those conferences is stronger than a one-loss team in the SEC. That is, you know, that is something we haven't seen. We really haven't even had that debate, and I'm just trying to pull up Baylor's schedule here because I believe they've only had one ranked win so far. Or, I'm sorry, they've only played one ranked team, which would be Oklahoma uh, in a few weeks here. But, right, that's where resume really comes comes to play because you look at Baylor. If Baylor is undefeated, they have not played a ranked team. I'm sorry, they, they played, Kansas State was number 22 when they played them uh, earlier this month and they won on the road. But now, as you say, I mean, Kansas State is a nice win over Oklahoma, so that definitely helps them out. But K-State is not going to be a top 25 team. You have Oklahoma at home, and theoretically, assuming, you know, you guys see how the Big, uh, Big 12 plays out, play Oklahoma again, you beat them twice, it's impressive. Now, like you said, is it impressive enough to bump them, let's just say, if LSU lose to Alabama. Well, you have an 11-1 LSU team with three top-10 victories and close loss at Alabama versus a 12-0 or a 13-0 Baylor team, mm-hmm. excuse me, whose best wins probably, well, their best win to date would probably be number 10 Oklahoma at home because mm-hmm. I don't think Oklahoma will get back to number 10 if they lose again in, in the Big 12 title game. Um, so you'll have one really top-10 top victory, maybe two top-25 victories total. <sighs> wow, Mark, that is... That's a scenario I'd love to see what happen because I'm so torn being, especially Penn State guys, seeing Penn State get left out of the playoff a few years ago. I didn't think they were going to get in, um, and I thought the right call was Washington. So we saw that a one-loss conference champ um, over a two-loss conference champ. We've never seen undefeated. I would love to see what happens. If you're telling me right now on the spot, would LSU get in over Baylor? I would probably say yes. Now, if it's Alabama, to me, that's a different story. If Baylor's undefeated as a conference champion, oh, uh, Alabama has one lost LSU as a non-conference champion. <sighs> Boy. 
That the, the is the big breeze. The that big is going to. I guess it's going to depend on style points. How Baylor wins if they win handling against Oklahoma twice. I could definitely see a scenario where Baylor is in. Because uh, this is so tough. Because you're right. It's like at what point do you like? Can you penalize a team for just playing the teams in their schedule, getting the job done? Right. It's not like you said. It's not their fault. The Big Twelve is down. It's not Clemson's fault. The ACC is down. So mm-hmm. as we said, Ace, uh, Clemson's a shoe in. They go right. undefeated. They're right. in the playoff no matter what. So you have Clemson, Penn State. Penn State will have proven himself beating, obviously, right. Wisconsin, They would be an Minnesota. undefeated, okay. right. right, an undefeated Big 12, a Big 10 champion, and, right. They're and in. winning a conference championship yep. game, okay. Then if you're Baylor, you would have beaten then Oklahoma twice, essentially, because Oklahoma's going to have two losses, and they'll still be in a better position than Iowa State or Texas, because they would have beaten Texas too, Baylor. Um, so Texas would then have three losses. Yep. So, they would have three losses. Um, well, in a T- conference. Oh, oh, okay. in the conference. Yeah, sorry. When, you, when you're figuring out who they're going to play in the conference. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. My, my apologies. Um, you know, usually, you know, in the last couple years, you would see, you know, Baylor had a big rivalry at TCU. So uh, they still have to play at TCU. In my opinion, I think they're going to, if they're going to lose a game, they're going to lose against West Virginia this week at home. Interesting. This okay. You're calling trip. your shot. This is their trip game because everyone thinks that. West Virginia, when you're looking at the schedule they have, I think they're looking ahead to Oklahoma, to Texas, to TCU. All those teams are the teams that they would normally be ready for. I think if they're going to slip up, this is going to be their week. Right. Like you said, their schedule is tricky. Again, not great resume-wise, but you said very tricky in terms of few trap games here and there. Possibly looking ahead. Like I said, TCU not coming off that big Texas when they're not to be taken lightly, especially now in Fort Worth. And Kansas, they close over that. I can't. Like, imagine if they beat that. They, they wind up beating West Virginia, then they beat Oklahoma, then they beat Texas, then they beat, like, rival at TCU, and then they lose to Kansas. Right. Like, I, know, that, I don't want to get crazy, right? No, but Kansas that could is no pushover. Like, I'm, no, I'm with you, not. yeah. They're like, not. They've been competitive under Les Miles' his first year. Like, if Georgia can lose to South Carolina, anything can happen. Right. It's, especially college football. You know, like anything Illinois can happen. Illinois can beat Wisconsin. Right. Anything can happen. If Oklahoma can lose to Kansas State, who are, you know, you look at Oklahoma and think, man, they ain't going to lose. They, they're just blowing teams up. Jalen Hurts looks like a Heisman Trophy winner. I mean, they are just absolutely manhandling teams. And then they come out and lose a game against Kansas State in Manhattan. You know, when you hear Manhattan, you think of, um, start spreading the news. You, know, right. you don't think of, uh, of Kansas. The little apple right. out there in Kansas. So, like you said. But this is what makes, to me, which makes college football so great. You have five one-loss teams, I think, all thinking they have a chance, and definitely do, cause, because with how backloaded all, a lot of these teams' schedules are, a lot of the teams in the top ten are playing ranked teams on the road, playing ranked teams at home this last month, and have a few in a row. It is definitely easy where we see a top team trip up in a game we don't think or lose maybe one or two in a row because they're playing tough competition week in and week out. That's what happens when now you have teams like Alabama playing their toughest games in November, uh, having even Georgia and, and Florida playing both of their teams, uh, both of their toughest games in the month of November. It'll be a, definitely a lot of fun to see how it kind of unfolds as the playoff go on. But um, definitely don't, you know, if you're a team, a fan of the one-loss team, it's going to be tough, especially with, you know, with what we've seen so far and the resumes left for a lot of these teams. But like I said, anything can happen. It's college football. Anyone can lose anyone. And who knows, Alabama could lose two games in a row and all of a sudden another playoff spot is wide open. So we will, uh, we'll see how that shakes out. We'll come back. I think, I think we're going to try our new segment here. I know last week we were kind of workshopping a new segment. It's called Take It or Break It. We'll, we'll kind of see it. You know, it's a working title. We'll see how it flows so far. But just a, a different way to talk about a few different topics um, throughout the sports world, whether we're agreeing so far, whether disagreeing, taking for real or not. 
Um, so we'll do that when we come back. The Morning Boys, Ryan Hickey, Mark Everkelly, Austin Tidham, I'm with you for another half hour on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Morning Boys, Ryan Hickey, Mark Everkelly, Austin Tatum. I'm with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are. We are on Twitter at WWSRN underscore radio. Uh, if you want to give us a call, one 877 Listen to us on TuneIn. We are on Periscope. We are on YouTube, Facebook, WorldWideSportsRadio.com. You can either watch or listen to us, either one up to your preference. Mark's looking great, shirt and tie, fresh and shaven. So you want to take a look, please be more than welcome. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. Wherever you are, um, we're here again every Tuesday, Friday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. About the fourth week, I believe, the show has been going. So just think you've been on the ground floor and hopefully 10 years and we are multimillionaires doing the show, you know, for millions of people. Just remember, you guys were the first that listened. We couldn't do without you. So thanks so much for, uh, for helping us take off here. But Mark, I figured, you know, we, we do a new segment. We kind of, we talked about it last week, workshop, didn't have enough time to fit it in. Take it or break it. It's essentially a buy or sell segment. We'll, we'll kind of put out a statement, agree, disagree, and we, we can hear why. So we have a few around the sports world that we'll get to, kind of, you know, just short ways to get to other sports stories that we haven't got to so far. So yesterday, with the day off of the World Series, they had a few new manager houses in MLB announced. The Phillies uh, officially introduced Joe Girardi as their manager. Cubs did the same with David Ross. Now go back a few days earlier, Joe Madden was introduced with the Angels. So of, that, of those three at least hired right now, between Girardi, Ross, and Joe Madden, Joe Girardi is the best hire of the group. Are you taking that or are you breaking that? I uh, take it. The guy who's won the World Series uh, with the Yankees, he's turned around the Marlins when the Marlins were basically everyone thought they were going to lose, like possibly set the record for most losses in the season, and he was 500 with that team. So I think that a very good hire by the Phillies who normally are in a – you look at what the Phillies did this year. Everyone thought that they would compete when they went out and they made the signings that they did, especially Bryce Harper and – Right, we saw what happened. They, right. they, so, the Mets finished above them, which right. is just, you know, right. shocking. Right. So, yeah, I'm with you as well. I think Joe Girardi is the best hire of this group. Um, I think, honestly, the biggest thing holding Girardi back from getting a job earlier was that just he's an old-school manager. You know, he wants to make decisions. He doesn't want input um, and analytics from the front office and the general manager. He wants to kind of run his own show and manage his own team. I think that hurt him, again, last year. And, and kind of, honestly, part of, I think that's the biggest reason why the Yankees didn't renew his contract after taking him to Game 7 in the ALCS when the expectations for the Yankees were very low in turn that season. He's had a home run higher, I think, for the Phillies, and I think he'll really take them with a great group last year. I think he'll take them over the hump this year and take them to the playoffs. Um, so we'll talk about the Patriots again. I know you love talking about the Patriots. Yeah. Bill Belichick notches 300th win on Sunday over the Browns. Now third place all-time in wins uh, behind George Halas at 324. And number one, Don Chulu has 347 career wins. Now, it's interesting because in the past, Bill Belichick hinted that he really doesn't want to coach into his 70s, figured he'd be retired by then. Now, on his radio show on WEI yesterday, he's asked about this. And Belichick kind of changed his tone a little bit, saying, you know, he's not opposed to coaching. He's feeling younger. It's like, you know, I feel like I'm in, you know, a young guy. He's 67 now, excuse me. So, I mean, you know, if he wants to retire by 70, just three more years left to go. I don't think he would chase and get to Don Shula winning, you know, winning 48 more games. So take it or break it. Bill Belichick, whenever he does retire, 
will retire as the all-time winningest head coach? Uh, I think so. I think so. He's got how many 50-something wins to get past Sula? 48. He's right at 300 right now to take the lead. So you figure – now, here's the thing. If Brady leaves at the end of the year, which everyone says he's going to, does Belichick call it quits then? I mean, in my opinion, there's going to be a short period of time where maybe Brady wants to do it too. Uh, Steve Young was talking about this yesterday, uh, about does Brady want to go and prove he can win somewhere else because he's proven everything else. And if he does, it'll be – There'll be no doubt about him being the greatest ever. I already think he is, but the greatest ever, not just a quarterback, but any sport. Okay. So, and then Belichick wants to do the same thing. He wants to prove, hey, you know what? My early years with Cleveland uh, were not what I've learned in the lessons since. And I want to show that my Super Bowl titles and all the things that I've built here with the Patriots is something that I don't, is not dependent on one guy. I'm actually totally with you, and I think, like, you, to me, you hit the nail on the head perfectly, especially if Tom Brady does leave next year. I feel like Bill Belichick, for the last few years, had been trying secretly to move away from Brady, trying to get a new young quarterback. I mean, obviously, he was forced to trade Jimmy Garoppolo, because I believe, at least Brady and Kraft also believe that he, you know, was going to be the next heir apparent, and I think, you know, Belichick was ready to make a move sooner rather than later. You know how Belichick is. He'd rather make the move a year early than a year too late. So I feel like Tom Brady's been the exception to that rule. And I think if Brady does leave next year, play for another team, like you said, to try to prove that he can win anywhere, be the greatest. I think Belichick had that same chip on his shoulder, try to prove, listen, it was not Tom Brady. It was me and my scheme that was so winning. And I, I'm with you. I think if that motivation sparks him, he realizes he's not that far away from getting 48 more wins, maybe five or six years if he keeps up the pace that he does now. And with him saying that he feels like a young 67 and kind of already starting to walk back his, his 70s remark that he doesn't want to coach to his 70s already, three years removed from, uh, from being that age that he said he doesn't want to coach at, I think it's a hint that he definitely at least wants to chase John Shula. And I believe, like you said, when he retires, he will be the all-time winning head coach and easily the best head coach in NFL history. Same with NFL, Matt Nagy. Again, we talked about Matt Nagy and Mitch Trubisky to start the, uh, start the show. Just their just their inability to be on the same page and Matt Nagy not trusting Trubisky. Um, so, again, with that loss of the Chargers, he's, he did say Mitchell Trubisky, Nagy did, that is. We'll start this week against the Eagles. Trubisky had two huge fourth-quarter fourth quarter turnovers against the Chargers, and, again, he wasn't trusted enough to lead the offense with just under uh, a minute left to get, some, get closer for a field goal that ended up missing. Trubisky enters Sunday, or he did enter Sunday, excuse me, Ranks 29th out of 31 eligible quarterbacks in QBR. So, again, his efficiency has not been there. He's missing. He's inaccurate. And, again, Matt Nagy does not seem to trust him to, to know the whole offense. So the Bears will have to move on at some point, take a break. This season, the Bears have to bench Mitchell Trubisky and go to Chase Daniel, or if they make a trade today somehow, another quarterback, but most likely Chase Daniel. Taking that or breaking that? I'm sorry, what was the question? The, the no. Bears breaking or, or take with uh, So do you, th- do you think the Bears will bench Mitchell Trubisky at some point this season? No. I think they're going to ride it out with him. Interesting. I think they will, to be honest. I think they're 3-4 and four right now. That loss, again, it just showed Nagy, to me, just telegraphed on Sunday. He does not trust Mitchell Trubisky in a big spot to do anything correct. And to me, that has to wear on him after a while. If the Bears keep on losing, their defense right now is one of the best in the NFL. They went to the playoffs last year a lot because their defense led the way and put their offense in great positions to succeed. To me, with Trubisky taking a big step back, not having the trust of his head coach, I think at some point Nagy just has to be, listen, 
this is over, it's not going to work. We'll go to Chase Daniel to try to, for a desperate spark to the offense to see if something can work, try to get back in the playoff hunt. So honestly, I think if this trend continues, I think we could see a situation where, maybe not, and it won't be this week, but I think in a few weeks, if this continues to go, the Bears continue to lose and spiral out of control, Mm -hmm. I do believe a move will be made. Mitchell Trubisky will be benched and probably end the Trubisky era in Chicago. Well, I mean, but Chase Daniel isn't, it's not like the guys that can't miss. I mean, he's a guy that's been around forever. I'm with you, 100%. I, I, I think if they're willing to throw in a towel on Trubinsky, that will really damage his confidence. I don't know if that's worth it for one season of getting back to where they're not going to make a difference anyway because the Vikings are a lot better than them, and so are the Packers. Well, the way I would view it as if, if Nagy is done with Trubisky, like you, you don't bench Mitchell Trubisky in the season and then bring him back next year. Right. You bench him realizing the era is done, we're going right. to move on and in the offseason and bring someone else in. To me, again, I think if, it, if this trend continues the next few games, I think we could see that. And again, like I said, Chase, uh, you, you hit the point perfectly. Chase Daniel's not a canvas prospect. He's not this hyped backup that you know, can really lead the team. To me, it's more about Trubisky not getting the job done and being trustworthy enough to lead the offense to where Nagy's just like, I'm over this. I'm going to put in Chase Daniel, who has less talent. But to me, I trust him more to make a play in a spot and more importantly, not mess it up. And again, that will signal to me the error of the Trubisky, uh, signal the end of the Trubisky era and have the Bears go in a different direction next year. This is interesting. Today, the NCAA, their top decision makers, are, me- are meeting for the first time to discuss modifying rules to allow players to benefit from their name, image, and likeness. Obviously, this has been in the news the past few, few months. California, the first state to enact that into law, starting in 2023, where players legally cannot be punished by the NCAA or their school for benefiting from their name, image, and likeness. So... Um, so, sorry. So that will, um, again, yeah, that, to me, that, that it's, it's a long, long thing coming for these players. And yeah. now a lot of other states, California's the first one to enact into a law. A lot of other states now are taking this up, writing legislation for this. The NCAA now, for the first time ever mm-hmm. today, meeting to discuss possibly modifying their own rules to allow this to happen. So is this the best solution, taking or breaking it? This is the best solution, allowing players to benefit from their name, image, and likeness I think for everyone. Is. I think it is. I, I think it's hard when you have uh, guys that are having their jersey sold for the university and not benefiting from it. I, I think I wouldn't want my name being out there that I couldn't gain from. Nobody should have to do that. And universities make so much money. And there's no reason why the universities overall can't benefit all the sports because it needs to go to those other athletes that are swimmers, that are volleyball players, that are soccer players, that have just give up just as much or put under just as much pressure with the things that they have to do, things they have to study, the schedules they have. Um, but they don't bring in the same type of money that football or college basketball does. But I, I think that if you're an athlete at a college and your college is benefiting from someone going there, then it should be something that the person benefits from and that they could share the rest of that with all the sports. So it's not just you don't have like a, a mentality where all these are the only sports that are important. I'm, I'm totally with you. I've been saying this for years. I actually did a, a project at school um, when I was at Penn State about this, how it, it has to happen sooner rather than later. That's right. Everyone wins out. The schools aren't paying these athletes a salary. The NCAA is not paying these athletes a salary. It's not coming in their pockets. Mm-hmm. This is other businesses, other boosters, mm-hmm. other, you know, again, stores around town basically having these guys, you know, be advertisers for their product and just allow them, like you said, allow any sport. Because at schools, different sports are important, right? It's not just football players, not right. just basketball players. You have Katie Ledecky, right? A great swimmer at Stanford. Oh, yeah. She had to leave Stanford 
if she wanted to pursue a yeah. career Ridiculous. in swimming Ridiculous. and get sponsorships. How is that good for the NCAA? Ridiculous. You're having your best athletes having to force to leave school because, right, they're trying to capitalize right now where they're still young, get yeah. the most money they can. You can have Katie Ledecky at Stanford get sponsorships from whoever, host mm-hmm. camps, you yeah, know, exactly. have brand sponsorships, mm-hmm. and still swim at Stanford and yep. still have you know, these players still in school. To me, like I said, right, every sport will benefit from this, every athlete that is good in their respective sport, and money is not coming out of the school's pocket or it's not coming out of the NCAA's pocket. To me, it's a win-winner for everyone. Long, long overdue. I'm so glad the NCAA is finally thinking about it, and hopefully they'll do the right thing enacting this sooner rather than later. Two more here quickly to wrap up here. The Steelers defeat the Dolphins outside 27-14. I mean, that was just a, a snoozer of a game, but the Dolphins now 0-7 in the year. I thought this was interesting. Are you taking or breaking the Dolphins at the end of the year will win two games? If they do, they're only going to beat the Jets. They have the Jets twice and the Bengals at least. Yeah, but the would Bengals you say the easiest yeah, teams the, on the, their schedule? The Bengals aren't as bad as the Dolphins and the Jets. The Bengals, are, yeah. Then when they started the season, they weren't throwing in a towel. The Bengals have lost close games. They were they were in a game of Buffalo where they had a lead in the second half. They they've had leads at the end of the game that they've blown. So I think they're much better overall than the Jets and the Dolphins. So you're so is that a no? I, I think the Dolphins, if they if the only team the Dolphins can beat is the Jets. Okay. Will they beat them twice or no. once? Okay. They might split with them. So you, you'll break it. You're going to say yeah. they'll get one win or maybe zero. If you're the Jets, you want – I think if you're a Jets fan, like, you don't mind if they lose to the Dolphins because you're screwing the Dolphins and you're essentially screwing or, or helping yourself because the more losses and the worse Adam Gase looks, the better it's going to be for you. Right. So this is interesting because going – like before this week, I would have said – I would break it and say there's no way. I don't think they might even win one game. The reason why I'm going to take this, and I think, I could, I think they'll win two games, is because, like I said, they, they play the Jets twice and the Bengals once. So they have, quote-unquote, winnable games on their schedule, you know, again. But the, the Dolphins not trying to win. To me, if they continue to start Ryan Fitzpatrick, mm-hmm. they're good we've, like, we've seen him with every team, no matter what the team, the Bills, the mm-hmm. Jets, the Bucks last year, he plays one or two games out of his mind and single-handedly the wins the game. Right. Like, last year he's opened he's, the season with the Bucks. They yeah. went into the Dome in New Orleans and won, 48-41. And he had a great comeback. I right. He, like, he's such an he, unknown. Yeah. Right. But he, like, he just, for whatever reason, one or two games, plays like the best quarterback in the league. He would perfectly screw that up. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Which yeah. is why I'm so puzzled why the Dolphins are continuing to play if they're trying to lose. They're going to run into where he's just going to find magic. And yesterday they up 14-0. I'm like, this is the game. Right. They're going to do it right here. Again, they end up losing to the Steelers. I, I'm going to take it because I think Fitzpatrick, again, if he continues to play, if they throw Josh Rosen in the rest of the season, I'm going to say no way. Mm-hmm. But if Fitzpatrick continues to play, I think there's absolutely a chance they'll win too because we see Fitzmagic, without a doubt, no matter what, early in the year, late in the year, middle of the year, he comes through with one or two games where he just puts a team on his back no matter what. And, when, I mean, he almost won the game against the Redskins a few weeks ago. They two-point conversion away right. when he came in the second half and right. led them. Dynasty. So I think it will absolutely happen if, if the caveat being Fitzpatrick plays the rest of the season. I think the Dolphins will win two games because he'll just will themselves. One more, Mark. Take this one away uh, for the last one. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there was this, this thing happened the last couple of days where these two girls behind home plate uh, showed their boobs as far as uh, something that they did. It was these models. They wanted to show off, I think, for, for breast cancer or something. But uh, the Major League Baseball, because you could see it from the camera behind, the, you know, when, when you're showing your pitcher throwing and you could see, you could see them standing behind home plate. Um, Major League Baseball wind up banning them for life. And there's been uh, talk that that was unnecessary, um, that, you know, this type of thing shouldn't happen because they were doing something for a good cause. I don't know what, what the cause was. All I know is that you had models 
showing uh, their boobs on TV where young kids could see it, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm not going to judge these people at all. I mean, it's, I, I don't live the perfect life either, okay? Uh, but when you're talking about something about cancer, okay, I, I know what it's like to suffer from cancer. I know what it's like to have your career taken away from you because of cancer. I know surviving cancer, uh, you feel like, you know, most people, if they survive cancer, they feel like that's the biggest fight that they have to do. But in my life, it's been, that was a huge fight where I was told I only, I was told I only had six months to live. And then uh, I've been able to survive since then. But I've had to deal with the side effects of chemo and radiation that have prevented me from working a normal job. And, and this is why this company's given me an organ, a chance. I mean, we, we don't get paid right now. But I, I think if there was a chance for me to eventually do something where I could support my family, where most of the people, if you're a survivor and you had your career taken away from you, some of these people are doctors, lawyers. They spent their whole life preparing, and then they get cancer, and then the side effects of chemo radiation destroy the things that they, that they prepared their whole life to do. So that's a serious thing. I, I, I think, you know, as important as breast cancer, it's only one cancer. There are so many cancers that are involved. Rhabdomyosarcoma is what I have. is a death sentence. There are so many cancers that matter that need funding. So if this is something that these people were serious about, and they said that they wanted to help families that are suffering and can't afford to pay their bills, I think that's definitely something that needs to be addressed. But overall, you have cancer survivors out there who have given their life to this disease and, not, and cannot live. That they are, they, their careers were taken away from them. They're fighting, paying their bills. Some of them are homeless. These things can't happen. And, I, I mean, I feel very passionately about it because that's the position I'm in. And uh, I, I'm thankful for, the, for, for this company and, and, you know, any other things that happen that allow me to, to be able to live. But you get to a point where, you know, I worked 10 years at ESPN. I went to Emmys at ESPN. I, that, I, I've, I could have done that the rest of my life, and I would have been okay. You know, now I'm in a position where, where I have to, you know, I don't know where the money's going to come from. So it's, it's a very tough position to be in, and I don't like to see it be exposed for something where your models and you think this is cool. Like, if that's, the, if that's behind it, then you, then you guys can go to hell. But if this is something that you really meant for the benefit of people who were suffering, then I think you need to go forward with it and mean it and really help the people you set out to help. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I can't speak for anything other than all I, can, all I can say is that I took it as they were trying to raise awareness for breast cancer. Again, a big platform. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. If, you know, you hope that was the motivation not right. just to get attention get Instagram followers, get Twitter followers, mm -hmm. that if that was truly their intention, yeah. sometimes you got to do, you know, what you have to do to get, you know, raise awareness. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you have to get attention by doing something crazy on a big platform, but yeah, in the end, race, it, it, it benefits if you have, I believe they have a magazine or a website yeah. um, that it helps raise awareness for their website to, again, drive yeah. them to donate or raise awareness for breast cancer. Right. In the end, you know, the ends justify the means, like you said, but mm -hmm. you hope that their intentions were right. Um, and that in the end, like I said, they were doing the right thing at heart. Yeah, if, if that's the case, then God bless them. But if not, if they were just trying to get themselves attention in a magazine and have no desire or no interest in, in using that to help the people that are suffering from this disease, whether they're breast cancer survivors or not, my idea is that, look, it's not just breast cancer survivors that are dying out there or that are suffering. There's a whole group of people that need your help. So if this is what you're doing and you're getting benefit from this, then you need to take that platform and use it like you said you were going to. So that will do it for the Morning Boys for this Tuesday edition. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are. You know, we're here every Tuesday, Friday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m., hopefully filling your morning with some entertainment, with some knowledge, 
Um, we'll be back here on Friday. Thanks, Brian Snow coming on Friday. Yeah. We Brian Snow coming on. Maybe we'll do a college football guest as well to preview the yep. big weekend coming up. Again, a lot of big, exciting games. The World Series game six tonight. Enjoy that. We'll be back uh, to talk about the winner. Uh, preview the NFL Sunday, college football Saturday as well. So, again, thanks so much for listening. For Mark Everkelly, for Austin Tidebaum, I'm Ryan Hickey. Appreciate you listening. Enjoy the rest of the week. Haystack is up next. We'll talk to you on Friday. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.